Hello and welcome to another episode of the Midiera Meets podcast, the monthly music podcast where we talk to a wide range of people from the music world. This month I'm speaking to Cy Connolly, who is a singer-songwriter based on the south coast of England. Cy's been signed to a number of huge labels, including Sony and EMI. He's got an incredibly soulful voice and has released an unbelievable amount of material over the years. So I caught up with Cy earlier on this year to talk about his career, and the first question I asked was about his musical beginnings. It started really early, man, like, like, I needed an escape, so I think uh, I was around three or four, I imagine, you know. That was back in the day when you used to have, you know, the Fisher-Price had that range, the range that's now out at Urban Outfitters and all those sort of places for, like, 40 quid. But back then, you know, they mm-hmm. had the they had the xylophone and they had the record player and just little things. But they were kind of the first instrument kind of practical things to sort of engage with at that age. And then Michael Jackson was kind of around that time everywhere, you know. Um, my dad's a DJ, so oh. that's kind of, that was one of the first things that I remember really was, was him kind of, well, it's, not, it's easy to remember because I was, he'd have to drag me to work a lot, so I'd be in the DJ booth behind, underneath the booth, you know. No um, way. In my pajamas, <laughs> sort of, um, until sort of two or three, and that was at sort of five or six years old. So I remember the oh. Doors and the Beatles and, and but hearing the sort of late, kind of, the early indie stuff, when I used to get a record stores like Art Price and places like that, and they, it would just be called indie or it would be called export or whatever, and it would be all this American stuff. So I remember that stuff, but my first, uh, he played Cocteau Twins and he played uh, Brian Uno and he played a lot of that stuff. But I think the first thing that really bit me fully was Michael Jackson's stuff. Um, that and The Wizard of Oz, I think, you know, because I, I used to sort of, just to sort of run around and kind of practice all the dances and do all that sort of stuff. But um, Michael Jackson was the first thing that showed me an escape, like a moment of wonder, I suppose, where you can go, wow, there's something else out there. People forget now because it's so, he's obviously got such a, a divisive reputation now. But yeah, yeah. at the time, he really, he really was, you know, just from another world, you know. And I would meticulously, I had a lot of sort of weird stuff growing up that was going on, so I needed something that I could focus on. And I think that, I didn't even know that was happening, but but uh, I needed something to focus on. So I would intensely just watch and study the Michael Jackson videos every every week that, that would come out. And I would practice the dance, basically, the dancing on there, to, mm. to the point of obsession. I'm not just saying no. like most kids, just, I'm, I'm talking about kind of like obsessive sort of um, you know Billy Elliot sort of <laughs> vibe you know I'm just literally absolutely like honing it and honing it and honing it to the point where I think by the time I was sort of eight or nine I was doing exhibitions and stuff like live stuff like that wow performance stuff and so it, dance, dance and that came first and maybe that's why my voice kind of sustained that kind of high range because it went all the way through that you know Right. Yeah, next stage after that. So we're going, that's really early, you know. My parents, they, they met, probably the first and the last time that they really actually met. 
but um, they went to see Japan um, band with Mick Kahn um, about 1981, about May 1981. <laughs> we went to see Japan, and then my dad said, "Oh, you know, you find I find Japan for you, for you, you know, being born and stuff." I say I thank Laybys. You know, because if it wasn't for the motorway lay-by, I really wouldn't have <laughs> had the chance, do you know what I mean? A combination of the two. <laughs> it's a combo of the two, but yeah, so yeah, he he, um, he was always absolutely just a kind of, my dad was always a kind of god with regards to music, very sort of renowned mm-hmm. as well around, around the era I was in. And were you there like picking records out for him? Did he, yeah, did he I'd have be a there. job to play while you were there? I'd be there. He had a night called Heaven and Hell at Gas Nightclub in Cheltenham. Chums where I grew up in the Cotswolds, and um, it sounds so regal, doesn't it, in Regency? But believe me, uh, the bit I grew up was not on the website. <laughs> um, and so anyway, so it was a weird one because I I, I didn't live with him. I, I lived with my mum. Up, I lived with my mum in the week, and we would sort of we lived in kind of a lot of weird places, sort of homeless shelters and sort of uh, drug houses and places like that. So it was pretty pretty edgy, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I'd live with my dad on the weekend, you know. The weekends, obviously, when he was DJing, and he would do. He did a night called Heaven and Hell, and he did a night called um, Yeah, the Continental. There was a place in Cham called the Continental. But he was just really, um, you know, he looked. He looked kind of very enigmatic, long hair, and kind of just real. He was kind of like the first, almost famous person I knew, mm. <laughs> if that makes sense. Uh, even though he wasn't, you know, famous in the world of today, but to a kid, you know. So I was always known as DJ Johnny's son, you know. And when I got cocky enough, around the age of 13 and 14, when Oasis came out, I was like, you're going to be known as Saigon and his dad. Pretty <laughs> soon. Um, but actually, it turned out we're both, we're both completely unknown, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> we can walk around, walk the, walk the fields of the Cotswolds perfectly un, unfeathered without any problems. Yeah. But he was my first influence, yeah. And then uh, Supergrass and bands like that, it came along. Yeah, I saw you mentioned I... Um, I should Coco was like one of your. Yeah, it was. Albums. It was. It was just like an arrow that song, that that album. Again, like that. He played me that. He played me. He introduced a lot of this stuff. You know, I, I would hear it. So he would never be like. He's very kind of. I don't know, kind of wise in a way. He knew if he came in and said, you know, listen to this, I probably wouldn't. But he was play. He'd play like Grace, Buckley's Grace, and he'd play. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. played Supergrass, and um, I don't know what song it was. Uh, I think probably all right or something like that I'd like to know the first track but when I got you know the album just completely spoke to me at like 13 years old and it, it was the transition from getting into music making music rather than dancing around you know jigging about I did a bit of acting in, in between those two things I did dancing and a bit of sort of the acting stuff and then mm-hmm. and then I kind of got very violent for a while and then I got into music um, and he he kind of he gave me this record, and he had, he had vinyls, you know. I think he, that might have even been a CD, though, the version he, he showed me. But the back cover of Ice Coco, anyway, Supercluster's Ice Coco, is just Gaz, Mickey, and Danny standing in a dressing room. Um, they're standing in a dressing room of a venue. Someone like me, at that age, would never have known what a dressing room was. I mean, the DJ booths and stuff didn't have those sort of things. So that just was like literally a window into a world that I was like fascinated by. And I just became very obsessed with it. I kind of locked myself away. I, like I did with the dance thing, I, I, earlier on as a kid, I just locked myself away, you know, f- 
for about six months. Just started, I picked a guitar up and started writing straight away with that. And I just learned two chords or three chords and then taught myself off books and stuff like that, you know. Mm. Didn't have any lessons or anything like that. So, yeah. and then and then um, really just off, off here and, and listening to that and that record. And I saw them live a lot of times as well, which was kind of amazing. Because they were, they were, you know, they were, they were only about five or six years older than me <clears throat> at that time. But the songs are still amazing, you know. I still just can't believe how good those songs were. Yeah, they got. I think they have a lot of like fun in the lyrics. There's a lot of fun and adventure mm. and misdemeanors and stuff that, and you know, like, yeah, Absolutely. I think their lyrics were like for for teenage for, or for you know late teens that were like I listened in college to Supergrass and it was like fun, like caught by the fun. Absolutely, yeah. And you know, songs like that are like they're brilliant. They're brilliant, and and those records, even the records that came after them, were just so different Richard III off the second album yeah. just was so different to anything else that that's out nuts. there I mean weirdly I played that I DJ'd uh, and played Richard III and I cleared the dance floor with that track and I still to this day don't know how yeah. the fuck that happened do you know it what it doesn't surprise me. me no it doesn't surprise me because <laughs> it's, it's one so of those tracks that it's like you probably would have had to take Primal Scream off for that you know and it it, it it doesn't have a dance beat to it. It's so unusual. That was the great thing about Coldplay. I mean, uh, not Coldplay, uh, Supergrass. Mm-hmm. Um, Coldplay great too. Uh, but yeah, so that was a good thing about them. But I, I sort of, you know, I just looked for inspiration anywhere I could get it at that time. And, you know, was, the American thing was great, Nirvana and stuff, but it, that spoke to me a bit later. But like at the time, you know, I was sort of very British, you know what I mean? I needed need something that was, and it, Oxford was only really down the road, you know, mm-hmm. from, from me, so I loved Radiohead and all them kind of all them bands and um, Strange Love and there's lots of sort of bands that didn't really kind of last the test of time I suppose. But Supergrass are one of the ones that just did. And so, I think yeah. I saw them first time I saw them live was at the Astoria in London. I must have been about 14, 15. I was really crushed at the front. But <laughs> the best my dad was stood there as cool cool as a cucumber as always. But I was I was just being crushed. But it was amazing, you know. It's just what a great introduction into a world that I just had to be a part of and I started touring I started playing live and touring instantly you know 13, 14 years old did you really? Wow. yeah I just had to get out there straight away the first couple of bands and stuff weirdly enough years later I was um, when I first got a deal and I, I sat there and I didn't have any real experience of like how to talk to these people. I had a, I had a manager that just told me to be as rude as possible. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I had this book I'd bought from like Waterstones. As rude as possible. Yeah. That seems he, like a very cause extreme... I was, cause uh, I, because I was too polite and stuff. And, and he's like, yeah. look, you know, you, this is a time of like Liam and, and Noel and all that. So you had to... And, uh, and they were all caught in you. And so I think I met loads of labels. There was a lot, a lot of labels interested at the time. So it was just like... And after a while, you just do start getting annoyed with these suits coming in, you know. But I remember, anyway, when I finally got the deal and um, I, I had this book I bought from um, Waterstones, I think it was sort of how to get a record deal, how to be successful. So I'm trying to get a refund on it now. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but um, I had this book and it literally was like a Bible and it told you everything you needed to know and have it, the terminology of how to like basically blag it in a meeting with these you know MDs of these big companies. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I'm sat in one of these meetings and I'm trying to reference back to some of the things I'd read in this book and highlighted, and you know when they're talking about points and things like that, uh, p- producer points and things like that. I was kind of thinking, uh, okay, I do know what I'm talking about. So, and at that point, I got past the rudeness. I didn't have to be so. Solid. They said, "Who do you want to make your record?" 
and he joined he joined me album so I was only about like 21 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just didn't know any names I knew Ethan John's producer and I knew um, Sam Williams who produced I Should Coco right uh, Supergrass and all the Supergrass stuff so maybe Quincy Jones I thought yeah I knew, I knew Quincy yeah but I thought maybe he might not return our call um, so and I thought well Ethan John I said, so I mentioned that, you know the only producers that I really kind of revered and I love are Ethan John's who at that time had done a lot of the Ryan Adams stuff like the Heartbreaker and stuff like that that's kind of how I knew him and the son of Glyn Johns and that who did the Beatles stuff is he? yeah so Glyn Johns did it put on the White Album, I think, and a few other things. And he worked with The Who as well. Yeah, he, did, he was a great I, engineer, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, because I, I interviewed his understudy or his... Oh, wow, yeah. Protégé, who is a guy called John Astley, who's oh, yeah, like John, a mastering yeah. en- engineer. And, yeah, he took over the, the Who sessions from Glyn, because I think Glyn fell out with the band at some that point. That doesn't surprise me, yeah. So, so, they, so then they were like, we need a producer. John, will you do yeah. it? And he stepped in and produced... Um, uh, the Who's Next or one of the one that's of the it because he had this drum technique didn't he Glenn Johns where he yeah. just recorded drums with two mics or something or three mics I saw a, I, did, I saw a masterclass with him like a I don't normally go into all those masterclass things but he was one I was specifically interested in going to mm-hmm. and um, I didn't mention his son at all which I thought was strange he didn't mention his son you know made Kings of Leon and Ryan Adams records and He's a, he's a great artist as well, Ethan Johns. But so anyway, going back to that, I mentioned Ethan Johns and I mentioned Sam Williams, um, and then luckily enough, I managed to get Sam Williams to make my the first attempt at my at my debut album, basically. So I spent a, like a year with Sam, and that was great. You know, getting to ask him about what's it like to make what's what's gas like, what's it like to do this, what's it like? and he yeah yeah. And there was even a moment where he was going to try and get Danny to play drums on one of my tracks, and things like that. So it's just the, the weird full circle of these things that it's kind of like wow I'm in with the guy that made the record that made me want to start doing this stuff um, and he was a bit he was I mean well I mean I'm on tape so I probably shouldn't say it but he was a, he was a nut job you know um, mm-hmm. he, I don't know what he was going for at the time but it was typical but you know the stuff you'd imagine uh, I imagine it probably was much more nowadays I probably think back and think he's probably thinking god I'm in with this kid that just I can't bother to be here. I'm, this is he's a job. Been told job. to be rude to everybody. He's told to be rude to everyone. He's rifling through my stuff. So I imagine, after someone like that making great records with with Supergrass, to to be working with people like me, an unknown kind of guy. About the time I didn't see it like that. You know, at the time I was like, I mean, we got on great. It was still great, but it, but it it was it was just. Oh, where's Sam? Oh, he's he's in that field over there meditating, talking to us sheep. And I would be like, okay, cool. Um, but you know what? I think they probably needed it after after working on my record. <laughs> um, yeah, I think you never know what people are going through, do you? On the surface, we're all like these sort of hardened individuals. Yeah. But deep down, maybe something's happened at home, or something minor's happened, or something happened in that morning, and we can all be. I think. Well, we he's an artist, be. you know. He's he's he can kind of he gets thrown around too much, but he's a genius, really. Do you know what I mean? A lot of his ideas and his musicality, and he was in a band as well. Um, so you just. I think the thing is, is that the hard part is when you, we always view everything through our small window into a big world, you know, and it, sometimes it's, it's, it, it takes time to be able to sort of start to sort of appreciate it from all the different angles, you know, um, mm. and I did, it was, but the best, best part about it was just constantly asking about people. He probably got sick of, <laughs> he's sick of me asking him about that, but I mean, he, he was like, I had a lot more way to, to record vocals, and, uh, to, to write the songs and stuff like that. Uh-huh. 
But I mean, if you listen to that record now, the Ashikoko album, it's like freakishly strange because it sounds like it's from another world. But if you really listen to it, it really is just three guys in a room. I think their brother played as well. So it's, it's three or four guys. And effectively, it's, it's pretty much a live record. Mm. It's very clever how it's been, how the little interludes in between each song and how the additional productions and the way the vocals have been treated have made that record sound as strange and as from another universe as it did as it actually is because it really does just listen it just sounds like a record it's live you know mm. I wish they I think the guys worked with him a bit later on he did he worked on it for the money as well yeah he was that, that those records were anyway, the first records that come funny that the things that are sort of are so big in our sort of world, you know, we've got things like they kind of get hidden away because they don't conform or they don't necessarily pay back into the thing. But yeah, yeah, I think yeah, computer games are getting insanely good. The VR stuff now and all that stuff is insane. I actually, I just deliberately don't play them because they're so good that. They're so much better than real life. What, what would be the point? <laughs> What's the point in getting dressed? There's no point in going outside because, you know, here I can, you know, I can fly, you know. Mm. Whereas you go outside and, you know, realise it's all walking. Yeah, <laughs> or like someone someone calls you a dickhead on the street. Yeah, yeah, you know, you, like, you can't do anything about it. You know, you can't, you know, you can't do anything about it, but in a computer world you can. Yeah. And it's become, it's, it, not only that, but the innovation that, that's happened in that world. I wish music had innovated it like that, in that way. In fact, you think of all the mediums now, I think books got it right with, with the digital world. Books kind of seem to have done all right. You can't really buy a page, do you know what I mean? Or, or you can't really buy a, a chapter. You have to buy the book, you know? Yeah. The physicality of the book is still kind of paramount, even though um, the Kindles and stuff do really cool stuff. And games, great. I think that music is the only one that has just I don't understand really how we've even accepted this is the deal mm. <laughs> um, I think maybe I mean maybe even movies I did read a stat that said cinema cinema I was apparently I say that word really f- funny cinema cinema no do I say that funny cinema cinema so apparently I sound cinema I sound, I sound posher than I am Apparently, I always sound posher than I am. People say that. They meet me, they're disappointed. <laughs> Apparently, the view, the viewing numbers are up. Which I can't believe it. I mean, up more than they were back in the 90s or something. I just don't believe that. I guess there's more marketing and promotion. So, whether that works on the mainstream uh, mm. films. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say so because it's really expensive. No one, you know. I mean, I'm a huge fan of cinema and world yeah. cinema, and, and and I buy DVDs like no one else does that anymore. But I still do. Uh, but yeah, most people just say, "Oh, just watch it on Netflix or just download it off a torrent website." And yeah. I wonder how the film industry is still going because ninety percent of the people I know just download films. And I don't know who's hanging out in cinemas. I think you go to cinemas now and you realise that the confectionery bit and the hot dogs are getting bigger and bigger. People are just there because they want to eat. It's got nothing to do. With it. They like dark rooms and food. It's got really nothing to do with what's on. 
That's actually no film yeah. playing. This, this is nothing playing. A few um, years back, I had this um, when I was kind of sort of didn't really have anywhere to live. I got this. I found that I figured out the cheapest way to be indoors for a long period of time without being asked to leave by security <laughs> was to get one of those Cineworld Pass things. So I think I remember just sitting there all day just watching these films I'd seen in right. the times and writing songs and stuff. It was just easier to be inside <laughs> yeah. for like 15 quid a month. That's like, pretty it's good, yeah. It's 70 p a day or something. Nice, man. Yeah, I think just going back to like audio um, books and, and, and music, uh, the way that they are set up now, you're right, like the books have evolved, like having audio books, a lot of people listening to audio books mm. in the car or whatever and on the move. And um, yeah, you can download PDFs of books and so distribution costs for them are really small. Yeah. And it is funny how like Napster sort of and, and all the torrent sharing websites sort of pulled the rug underneath the music industry in the late 90s. They were vilified for that. And I just found it insane that that happened. I know that I'm going to probably get a lot of flack with people. Get, the minute you put any opinion online, everyone just suddenly dimes on it. Like as if you're not allowed to have an opinion about something. But I do think that those those early touring websites, they got they got vilified a lot, you know. We, there was a lot of this kind of, we'll get the collapse in the music industry, and uh, it's all, I mean, come on. A few people could figure out how to actually get, definitely maybe, or, or whatever record, or whatever movie, on. but they're not that easy to figure out. Most mm. people are sitting there thinking, I'm gonna get a virus or something on my computer. So, the idea that en masse, most of the, audience for music are going to just get their music for free on these things was absurd but the, what's even more absurd is that not only did they get vilified for it the music industry also said we're going to take that idea by the way and just run with it and mm. and that's going to be the model but we're going to have it under our world you know uh, we're going to have we're going to govern it under our side because who pays for music now who yeah. pays for we, who really pays for media now it's become drinking water you know there's tap water you know mm, I think the problem being when everyone starts giving away their music for free to get recognition or to be heard then yeah the value the value of what you're making yeah goes down doesn't it or the, the value the perceived yeah. value of I it. think it does I think, I think the value of, of music is I, I just I, I really do think the music industry has completely destroyed itself I don't think it's and I in a weird way it's kind of cre- created a whole new way of interacting with music which in a sense is good so it's kind of created some really good stuff you know people okay people do engage with music more on a daily basis because it's there and it's but do they there's something about going to there was something about having to be a part of something that having to lean in that made you part of something it made mm. it had a value to it. Like nowadays, it's not part of anything. My thumbs are more part of it than I am. I'm yeah. flicking through, and also this idea that that is really beneficial to independent artists is is it? I mean, you go to see a show. I only saw a show and there's a guy on stage and he's saying, "Yeah, come and get my my singles out on Spotify next month. Come and listen to it for nothing." I mean, that record it doesn't it costs 20 grand 10 grand to make an album and put it out really mm. you know maybe less but 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 not that much less cause, because you've still got to either learn how to produce it yourself um, you know, on a laptop you know you've still got to mix it 
and if your mixes aren't good you've got to pay for mixing mm -hmm. then you've got to do videos then you've got to sort of do all that stuff and pay for all that business and by the time you actually get it out there you're investing the minimum your investment is five grand or something and then it goes out and it doesn't really sell for anything so and it isn't really that you're going to benefit from like selling your music as far as much as streaming it goes streaming's perfectly fine as a media that is the medium now that it mm. does offering people downloads and buying songs it's just giving people a hassle in the world it's not but we don't exist like that so my problem isn't with streaming at all my problem is with um my problem is with the network in which it's been set up so you know most artists aren't getting much out of streaming you know we're not getting we might be collecting sort of some fans or whatever but, mm -hmm. but we're not it's not really set up I mean how can it be how can it be distributed how can that £10 a month or £7 a month be distributed into and why should it be as well like why should someone yeah, an artist, an artist right. like me get as much percentage wise as someone like Adele it's absurd it shouldn't so it's not it isn't like it's been set up badly because anyone's got an agenda as such it's just that certain boxes haven't ever needed to be ticked like yeah. labels can can kind of have a own make money as stakeholders because they can own they can own shares in in these in these streaming services so they're not they're 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 not losing the same but if for instance from an artist's point of view if the the only music you put out is is listened to for free it does change the paradigms it doesn't like ruin music for you it doesn't like I'm not sitting there going oh I didn't make 30 quid off my sales this month I mean yeah. it's not like it I'm going to really sound much anyway for the, for the people listening to it either, no it, it makes it music. it actually makes it more accessible but what it does do is it does change the paradigms of of value it's just because you're just basically releasing just, it's just content which is fine because but to, you put out more content 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 there is a cost to that like to create that content there is a major cost from an artist's point of view to create that content and so what you find is that it has a knock-on effect to the distribution and creative network that side of it so it becomes a kind of classism system where when people have a lot of investment from their parents or some money they can kind of afford to make more content or like not all of them, but but they can kind of afford to make more content and get it out there more more regularly. Mm -hmm. When I say more regularly, I'm talking like a track every kind of four weeks, two to four weeks. Yeah, because like it, you know you have to, and it isn't just music; it's videos and all sorts, and that stuff costs a lot of money to make. Mm. It's not just like the these videos and these things appear because I'm. That the idea is that we're all just hanging out, kind of in like in an Apple kind of world, <laughs> drinking coffee and. And, and knocking out filming these. our mates skateboarding oh. down the road and then we've made this great video and it's gone viral and all that it's just a load of rubbish most most acts are put, are making our music we're putting it out we're getting 12 likes on Facebook and we are paying for Facebook ads and we're we're building it slowly and we're focused on our little steps and those steps are massively important but um, one of the doors that's massively narrowed to us is it's not the it's not that the sale of the music is actually it's the fact that there's so much information out there now that there's so much noise that to even stand a chance of getting above that noise you either have to increase your volume of creation which costs loads of money mm -hmm. or you have to increase the promotion of what you've created which costs 
money it does cost money yeah. people say it's, it's, it's application it's time it, yeah right yeah it, I'm starting to believe in like the opposite as being a really good approach like don't promote it you know like artists like Burial for example yeah. or Banksy the way that they approached their thing it wasn't like there was no promotion really it was like people came to find it because there was an enigma there there wasn't much information yeah. out there so you know like if someone tells you a story and they say oh I, I, can, I can't really t- say what happened mm. you just start to brain you start to go crazy about all the amazing things that could have happened and eventually when you find out that story you're like oh is that it but like, yeah. it's like a, ma- like a magic trick so I, I, I think that actually the reverse is true and I know from my friend's company um, who's based in Brighton he sells MIDI stuff and I, I sort of I'm involved in that He's always been a firm believer in doing no promotion, doing no marketing, and 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 keeping making people find him as being like the reward. That is the. I, I, it's a funny thing you say that because it that is after after you go through that rat race of of over promoting and over selling and trying and getting everyone to try and do this and to try and do that, and it, it, after years it does get wearing for independent acts. And I say independent acts, I hate that word, but like just unknown acts basically. It does get wearing because they're they're following they're jumping through these hoops they feel that this is what you have to do this is what it's all about i've got to keep grinning i've got to keep smiling because it's all about everyone loving me and everyone thinking my life's great and and i'm networking here's my business card yeah, like superficial yeah like superficial the, and, and i think that they're what they're thinking hopefully this will pay off and i think deep down when they you know there are moments when it doesn't they don't feel like it's paying off and it doesn't really work but absolutely what you said a moment ago is really becoming much more true it's how in a sense how I'm trying to do what I'm doing I mean I don't have a major option to open promote because I can't afford to promote my records so mm-hmm. I mean that, that those are my I have to work with the paradigms I have and my paradigms are I can either like obliterate my fan base online with just constantly like I'm a walking sandwich board mm-hmm. which I just refuse to do because one these people aren't necessarily my fans, they're like friends and the people I know, so it's not really the market for it. Two, it's almost off-putting because it, it creates a, it almost demands a defensive response. Yeah, I'm, I'm if there's too many things happening. Yeah. I would much prefer, and my whole campaign, in a sense, approach is, I want people to trip over it. It's only when they trip over it for themselves. All my, my kind of job is to sort of plant these little seeds and they kind of have to grow them themselves, you know if they want to and it's only when people trip over it themselves that they really feel like they've, they've discovered something they have some ownership in it yeah I think and that's like, what happened with Burial for a lot of people yeah. they felt like they'd discovered him and that's how, exactly how I approach my life stuff as well because uh, it was I don't want to just and, and, and going back slightly is it's the only way to really grow something properly from the ground up like even after all the years I've been doing it I had to sort of draw a line and go right. I had to like build this slowly now. I had to think really small, and not try to ex- like, try to expect things to blow up or go viral or anything. This is mm. much more about basically creating great stuff, great live performances, great um, records, and great content in a manageable way that doesn't kill me. That doesn't make me think I'm trying to keep up with the Joneses or whatever. Yeah, but, but yeah. I have to have enough belief in what I'm doing to realise that people are going to trip over this. It, and that's how I want it to be. I, I want to be playing to 50 strangers, you know. I don't want to be playing necessarily to the people that know me all the time. I want to, want to the two or three that don't know who I am, yeah. Because 
it's only when they trip over it that they feel like there's some ownership in there. And and because that's the real reality of what we're, where we're at. And it, uh, I think the more you do it, the more you realise there is no moment of realisation. There is no point of success. The success is the connection you have with the audience. It's, it is, um, like your friend said, it is people discovering what he's doing. That's the point. People don't want to be sold. I think that's the thing. Yeah, I think everyone we're sees sold this. Every moment of the day, mate, we wake up, um, you know, people want this or want that, you know. We've got to get out. We've got to make this. Mm. If only people could hear it. So how do I get people to hear it? I'm just going to pay for PR and pay for this. Believe me, any artist that's paying for PR already has a deal, in a sense, because if they've got enough money to pay two grand a promote, two grand, uh, I think it's two thousand more or less. That's the average, two thousand per single to promote your stuff to get to get PR right. And you're ringing up your PR agent, going, "Why not get any PR?" Like, because no one knows you are, mate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you ain't got no fans. So when I'm talking to this editor here and I'm saying, I've got this really good artist that no one's ever heard of and no one's going to want to read about on your, on your website. Do you mind giving us, um, you know, 12 inches of, uh, of space on your site? They're like, not mm. really, because we've got this act here that's just it's signed with AWOL and it's doing all right. So it, like I was saying, going back to the classism thing, it does, it does divide the people that have, have a bit more um, privilege behind them or, or a bit more kind of stuff. They can kind of afford to kind of put money into those areas but I don't believe those areas are really where it's at mm. well, it's, it's just a couple of things that are sort of <coughs> while we're talking there is a thing that Imogen Heaps you know the artist Imogen yeah Heaps? amazing yeah. she's setting up a thing Pioneer. called Mycelia which is like yeah. a blockchain distribution of, of, of money for artists so um, an equal division of the money that's sold from online sales yeah. will go specifically directly to each of the people involved so there's no big like chunk taken out by a label or distributor or promoter or anything like that. Yeah. Or maybe there will be, but it will be a an equal percent. So I think that's that's something yeah, that, is, that, out. that is um, that out. pushing it forward. Amazing. Yeah, and the more people that get behind that, I think the more musicians that get behind that idea, um, yeah, the more likely it is to happen. And it is a it is a really a really good idea. I think it's idea. a good idea. I I definitely looked into it. I think like my only kind of. Um, I was talking to Hills about this. My only, my only kind of, not bugbear with it, but just my only kind of wrangling with it is, I don't know how much it really speaks to unsigned acts that are just playing in London to 20, 30 people or putting out music to a couple hundred people online or whatever. Does it really... Because is there going to be any... I, I get the morals behind it. The morals are absolutely correct as to the way it should be set up. She's kind of saying this is the way it should work and it, sh- it isn't set up this way, so why why not? But it, it, I think it's going to benefit more of those mid-level acts that are coming up that have a more of a sustained thing. I think for most acts that are just really unknown, we're not looking at our purse going, you know, where's my money? No one owes me any money. No one's buying records. There's no royalties. It's like mm-hmm. there is none. There, that's the that's the grand total of that Shane would find that okay. There's there's twelve pence um, 
allocated to Cy Connolly this month. We've mm-hmm. got to make sure he gets it. So as much as I'm proud to, to receive the 12 pence, it, it really is kind of like, um, yeah... It really doesn't really. Help. Yeah, I think you. It, it's the mid level. I think. I think the. I think the thought behind it is brilliant, and I think that I'm surprised that's not the case already. Yeah, I do find I blockchain people, really confusing. Though it is confusing. I talk to people here about it, and um, it is really, really confusing. It's not something that uh, mere mortals like you and me know I, exactly yeah. what's happening. But yeah, it's again, yeah, it's the morals behind it. It's the ideology behind like the the sharing of it. I always um, felt sorry to interrupt. I always felt that I had an idea that so streaming, for instance, takes something like Spotify. Here's the royalties. Here's here, here's the plays that have basically been played uh, per label. So okay, so Universal made up thirty forty percent. Uh, this made up this percentage. Just this label made up thirty percent. And then the la- the artist within that label, maybe Adele made up. 80% of that 34% you know what I mean mm-hmm. so in a sense it trickles to each, the payment system should be trickling down to the percentage of how much that specific there's a, there's probably a number of artists on those labels that bought in and it's kind of like a shareholder system in a weird way I probably mm-hmm. won't make any sense in my brain I kind of it, there's a load of monkeys running around my brain with white coats going this is this, this is how it should work mm-hmm. But I don't know how to, I don't know how to do it. It's all it's all evolved pretty quickly. Not as quickly as the gaming world, but it's definitely evolved a lot quicker than most people. The second they said you could cherry pick songs and digital digitalize music, in a sense, it was kind of the beginning of that world and the start in the begin the end of that world and the start of something new. Yeah, I think nowadays like consu- the consumer is powerful. You know that like with Amazon, you've almost got this superhuman strength to go. What do I want? I want a high tech calculator, and you can get it tomorrow. Yeah. So it's like this superhuman strength, or you can visualize something you want, and it literally appears on your doorstep. So like, yeah, the consumer is like human connection can... has absolutely you no know, thrived in that because it, we now want to connect more with people, in just in general on a, on a on a normal level. I mean, it's just a, on a kind of human level. Yeah, because I think and we that missed has that. so much weight to yeah, it. So missed... that's the one great thing that's grown out of it because. There'd be no way of doing that back in 1998. Yeah. There's no way I could have really connected. You'd have to hang around back. You'd have to hang around outside a venue until like one or two in the morning to get a glimpse of some, you know, one of your artists coming out of a venue. Exactly. Getting into like, a band, you know. Yeah, I mean, for me, a weird thing happened. You know, Keith Flint died this year from the Prodigy, yeah, and I was sad, a huge yeah. Prodigy fan. So I went to Braintree to the to the funeral. Wow. And I saw in real life Liam Howlett I've seen him on stage before yeah. but like I saw the actual guy and it was you know that was a huge deal like just obviously I was there for Keith's funeral like that was it was it was tremendous he was such a loss I saw him I saw them around the fact of the land record I think oh, it was a headline V V99 or V98 one of them um, it was amazing I was yeah. in the front and just yeah Amazing artists, and but he was in a weird one as well in a sense because people, his fans and their fans connected with him, on a kind of personal level, mm-hmm. and it's kind of goes back to what it's now about. Like the rewards now are, are kind of collecting a family of people that kind of love what you do, and you kind of not just it's not just one way you kind of get involved in what they're doing, and it's yeah. it is much. There are some really great things about the modern age. It's not it's not all. Um, doom and gloom at yeah. all like it's just it's just the power it's just the way 
it's just a way to how, how do how do independent acts make make a living how do they sustain being able to create music that's kind of really what i'm saying yeah and definitely. i think thing, things like patreon uh the website uh the creating membership platform that they have um i think that can actually be a benefit you know if it's not thought of, if it's if those websites if they're not thought of, thought of as um making money necessarily but they're much more thought about as a place to kind of connect directly and give more content and have much more of a, an open relationship and there is some money that kind of is growing but it's much slower and it's in a sense the more you grow your body of sort of Patreon members the more you grow your audience in a certain way but I definitely it's much more tribal so you have your fan base on Spotify and you have your fan base there and you have your fan base live Trying to get it all at the same time is, is always a pretty tricky thing to do. It is. I think Gary Newman's done quite well in terms of like diversifying what he offers for people. So as as a as a punter, you can pay to go to his rehearsal sessions. Wow, amazing! You can buy. You know, he sells his old gear. He's you know he sells like I mean lots of bands do. They sell like the song lyrics that he's written or stuff. But yeah, if you if you look at what's available in his in his like website, you're like yeah, he's really kept. He's really thought about really what's going to be yeah. fun. Like going to a rehearsal is like such a. Normally, that's just such a private thing that that is just you and you and your band or whatever. Half my band didn't even turn up to my rehearsal. <laughs> <laughs> I'd actually need people to. If you can come to my rehearsal and you can play, you can um, play. Yeah, you can be your spoons. You know. Um, well, yeah, that'd be good, wouldn't it? Like you could, they could jam. They yeah, definitely he's, could. He's be. done really well in terms of like diversifying the merch. Yeah, uh, into you know cool what? Stuff that is I've started to kind of get on board with this whole vibe now. It, after I did, after coming into this new record, it's called Change. My new album, and um, it's called Change for so many reasons, and that's one of them. It's just completely, weirdly enough, for all of the, my opinions on streaming, and and uh, I have completely, you have to embrace the world and the and find it in a creative way, and all of those things. There's so many more places. That's the good thing about the internet now is there's so much more places to do it but I think that it's not all just on Spotify you know I think you might have a million streams I know people that have got millions of streams on Spotify and they get 10 people to their shows yeah it's like or they've got 90,000 people on Twitter and 15 people turn up to a show or they've got 250 500 people coming to a show and hardly anything going on online yeah that's a weird one isn't it when you look at a band online and they're like You've loved them and seen them live, and everyone's yeah. gone crazy for them. And you look online, like, wow, no social media presence. But uh, for me, that's they've done they've done it the right way around there. Yeah, the social media really means fuck all. It doesn't mean like, it doesn't mean anything, and, and it's it's just a different audience. I don't think people. I don't think I don't think a lot of new artists do it. I think there are in the grime world that they've realised that, and there are a few other things. But I think that coming from just from like playing guitars and stuff, I don't think that we. And I'm saying I'm trying to let myself in with a generation that's under like, like younger than me in a sense, but so they probably understand it because they grew up with it. But a lot of people are around my kind of era that are going back to that. Um, we it took us a while to catch up and, and and figure out, you know, what is this and how to work it. And so I think you'll find that, that you know, but social media, you have you can you just have to work all of the all your plates need to be spinning at the same time. You kind of can't afford to have nothing going on on Spotify, but you can't afford to have loads of stuff going on on Spotify and no one can see you live. There's like offline audience, your Spotify audience, your um, Patreon audience, your crowdfunding audience, your 
Twitter kind of uh, interactions, your Facebook stuff, your friends, your it's just so much, you know. Yeah, definitely. Um, and there's so many mediums writing books and doing all sorts of stuff that's not just music that people are much more interested in the person, you know. Exactly. Not, you know, I think they are missing. Almost, music's a sort of garnish on the side, you know, in a sense. So it's connecting as as a human being is so much more rewarding, and that's something that they would just never have got on board with. Can you imagine the Stones or you know even Oasis? Yeah, hang out at Oasis for a sort of no fans. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like ask them, you know, ask them anything. Yeah, know. ask Bonehead what where his hair's gone. Like they're they're not gonna want to reveal all. You know what I mean? It's the mystique was part of it. Yeah, and exactly. I think that that's if yeah, if yeah. there's new mark for marketing now, if there's a mystique side of it, it's easier when you know you've got the gargars and that that thing. But for most part, for the most part, I think you kind of need to be a lot more open now. And, yeah, and you have to get on board being comfortable with that. You know. Even if you're not. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that? Um, I mean, I know for me personally, uh, going to live music is an incredible experience. Like I love doing it, and I and I do it like a lot now, especially living in Brighton. And I think for a lot of people, having that human contact of the real thing happening in front of them mm. and being there and experiencing it, like that's more of a deal than ever before. Seeing live yeah, music, it is because you know you're supporting these people that you love, and it's like. Because I, I about about eighteen months ago, I I actually sort of stopped playing. I kind of got to a point where I was like, I stopped playing live. So I'd done a lot of touring. I've been touring. You know, people were at the time were like, "What are you doing?" I said, like, "I've been doing this twenty years. Like, <laughs> been playing like seventy, eighty, two hundred shows a year like, for twenty years. Like, and I did a couple of years of playing shows, and I've got more of a following in London, to be honest, than I have anywhere else. Um, but." I just got to a point where I was like, I'm now just doing this for, it felt like I was doing it for like ego reasons, like it felt like I was doing it because I, it made me feel good that like 120 people or 200 people or whatever would come to a show. And I was, I loved the fact they'd come, but I was like, well, I'm playing the same songs. They've seen it a thousand times. I'm focusing my energies on this because it's more comforting to do this than realise that I've really got nothing going on, you know. Um, and I do. I just didn't want to get stuck in that loop of just continuously doing that. It wasn't enough for me. I would mostly be depressed at shows and just down anyway. So I, so I stepped away from it and I sort of did my thing. I do a lot, which I get people take the mick out of me about. But I sort of say, I'm just the last time I'm doing this or the last time I'm doing that. I kind of quit stuff. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean it at the time, and a lot of them sort of wry about it and go, oh, "Yeah, I'll see you again soon." And maybe they know. They probably know me better than myself, but. At the time, I was like, I'm never, what's the point? If nothing changes, I don't see the point in doing another show like this. Yeah, it does um, say somewhere that you retired from <coughs> playing live in yeah, 2018. I did, yeah, and then 2019 and back. So it's, it's, uh, what made me come back was the real, I made this record, um, I did a big, a big kind of walk thing as well across the country and I had some time away from it and I realised, it was somebody that said to me, someone, um, a friend of mine that said, it's your connect people what you don't realise is the most valuable thing is your connection to the audience and their connection to you if you take that away 
you know, what you, it's just insane. You know, mm. it's your biggest asset. Yeah, you know? exactly. So why would you take Closest, it away? Yeah. So and and I realized I and I have to have some time off, and I realized if I came back live in a structured way. So it had to go up. The trajectory had to be forward. But I, it would mean I'd have to raise my game to the best in the world, you know, to live to really be able to, like, grab people to the point of um, making them trip up and lean in and, and discover it themselves. So I came up with a, a plan to, OK, I'm going to book a year's shows. It's got to kind of grow together. This, I came up with this, I've got this little project thing called Project Basket, which, which is every aspect, all those plates spinning, I'm trying to manage all the time. And my live thing was kind of a kind of variety, but effectively there's eight big shows over the course of a year. So they've all been, they've all been booked. So th- and I wanted to start, I wanted to raise the fact that the last places I played were 200, 300 capacity. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go right back and go, right, okay, I'm actually going to go right back and not oversell and not push this down people's throats. I don't want Aunt Edna here and this person there and the 10 mates. This has got to be real now. So mm-hmm. I took it back and I played a show at a place called Servants Jazz Courts, which is like 60 capacity in London. I mean, the next one's 40 capacity at Betsy Trotwood. And then it, each time it kind of goes up. So then the next one is it'll be, um, one after that is uh, St Pancras Old Church in September, which is 100 capacity. And then, then I think it's going to be, you know, um, I don't want to mention the venues, but basically they go up, they get further and further up. Each venue goes up, capacity goes up 20%, 30%. So have, and they're all headline shows and my own label shows, the Dead Rabbit events and stuff. So they're all quite themed. Um, but they really slow build so that basically in a year, so I think a year, year yesterday, so it's the 18th of July today, so the year 17th of July next year, I headline Dingwalls, which is the biggest headline show I've ever done, yeah, four really? five hundred capacity venue in London. Oh, nice. And then after that, for someone can achieve that, then it'll be right. This is now the level I want to play. When I'm doing a headline show in in a city like London, this is now the level. It's like the next stage to try and get to is Scarlo and then um, Union Chapel, and mm. just trying to actually see a trajectory of rise rather than play the same venues at the same level. Yeah, I think it, and it's great to uh, like grow that because your your sort of your adjustment to it will be a slow progression as well. Like yeah, the shows, the show, even the music really changes in the way, but also your connection with the audience. You see, they they're there, and it's just as important that they're part of something. And my connection with them is it really like a good a live show to me and performance to me is is, it's a complete connection with the audience. And it's a conversation. It's not a monologue, you know. It's it's a conversation between the two, and I. That could be during sound check. It can be at the show itself, um, but it really the minute it starts to happen, there's only one way you can have that moment of that pin drop moment, of the most intense moments live, and that's mm. because you have to love your audience, and they have to kind of love what you're doing, and and, and feel a part of it. And with my stuff now, it's it's become even more important to to do that so to me it was like a no-brainer coming back live and, and doing that uh, I want that audience to be able to look around at Dingwalls and and then you, you know even more than that you know uh, who knows if we can't get to Roundhouse and places like that even being an unsigned independent act I don't see why not and I want those people to be able to look around and go wow look at what we've grown you know mm-hmm. um, yeah the music will be part of that and then there's 
there's the pension stuff and then there's um in amongst that doing these spot shows where i just turn up and do one song it's really quite funny <laughs> the one song that's it that's so i'm playing a lot more than those big shows i just pop up places i don't advertise i'm doing it i just mm-hmm. go turn up do the one song and then you know where do you do one where do you do one i've done song? quite a lot of them most of them in london some in brighton and colchester and uh, sort of surrounding areas um these little spot gigs i do and i'll, I'll probably go like two hours before i said spot hashtag spot gig and uh, i'm gonna be at this address type thing um, but it's not really even to notify the people to come and see it because it's, it's much more about I want to go in and hoover up that audience, you know. And it just means in that one song, I have to perform that one song so well that I can guarantee that I'm going to get those people. Because there's more. the, you know, yeah, I want, yeah, I, mean, I want, it's yeah. It's an interesting It's, it's really good, man. It's, people <laughs> want to hear more and they can't get more, so they have to come to the shows to see more. It's a really cool thing, and I found them, and you can do them all the time, and it's great. Uh, I love them, and they've been really much more effective than I thought they would ever have been. And then I've got the regional shows amongst that, so I'm doing lots of regional shows, and now I'm doing tours as well, the normal stuff. So the next stage for me probably is to try and get a booking agent at the end of this process to try and showcase that I have a following um, to some respect, get an agent, get some decent supports with some decent acts and touring acts. That's what, that in a sense, they are spot gigs because you're, you know, you're on stage for like 10 minutes before the main act or first on or whatever. But then you're playing to audiences you've never meet your stuff. So, yeah, exactly. So for me, there's a real, really, really scaled highly kind of thought out approach to, to my live shows and every single time I go on stage I literally want to, these people to see the best thing they've seen you know exactly that's how I want it to be yeah the first podcast I ever did was with a girl called Cheryl Panera who's a bassist and she oh, played wow. with the Go team and she played with lots of other bands and she the whole this whole podcast started because she agreed to be interviewed wow and I was like oh fuck I've actually got to do this you've got to get it going yeah shit she agreed to do it that's mental because when I saw her on stage she had like this amazing stage presence and captivation that I didn't really see anything or anyone else in the band she just had such great stage presence and I you know I asked her about that and she she said it was like um yeah, you've got to remember that nowadays you're competing with a lot of stuff that people could be doing other than yeah, seeing yeah. live music. So she said it has to be a performance. This is not just about me playing my bass guitar mm. on time with the music. This is about performance. And I was like, fuck yeah, I'd never, as a punter, yeah. I'd never thought about that. And, and like, you know, I'm in a band and we play occasionally, you know, just, just at pubs and stuff. And like, yeah, we watched someone played us a video of us playing live, and it was like none of us are like actually performing. We're all just doing our job, and yeah, that's what people are there to see. Those for me, yeah, it's an exorcism. They? Like when I play live, it's absolutely the one place I feel at home, and I make I only really make sense as a person once you see me play. Like, mm-hmm. don't really make sense. I'm kind of like an awkward kind of <laughs> out of work monkey or something, you know, before um, <laughs> that moment. Um, so I'm when people see it live you should be able to get the audience before you even open your mouth or even play a note it should just be you're on stage there's it's just it's a weird like metaphysical thing that happens where you can get the room to that pin drop moment without even doing anything Mm. it's a strange thing but for some reason I've got had the ability to do that for, for a long time but I got lazy with it as well I just would think that that's that's kind of, I don't know, I just thought that's, 
you, you rely on your tricks. You get lazy as a performer and you think, you know, you think you're going to get caught out and someone, someone of real reverence is going to say, yeah, I know what you're doing, you know, you're, you're doing this and you're doing that. You're, but it, you, I kind of would rely on those tricks a bit. So that's why I kind of stepped away from music as well. I was thinking I'm, I'm just, I'm not really performing that great. It's still going down well, so I'm just sort of lapping it up. And, and, and for me, like, I'm trying to be up there with Amy Winehouse and up there with the best performers in the world. I'm not trying to compete with anyone I'm playing with. And I, I, it's funny I say compete because I, I come from that world where it, it's a healthy, happy com- competition, but I do, I'm like that. I'm not, I don't understand this. I, you wouldn't see this in athletics. And so you're saying Bolt standing on the sidelines cheering on his competitor going, oh, wow, you've done so well, you beat me. Like it's, Yeah, that's the great thing about music. Yeah, yeah music, sure. music is, is, is people are... It's, it's, I, I want to be, um, I want to be the best. I want to be the, the best act I can be for myself. It's nothing to do with like better than other, other people, but I just want to be better myself. And I don't think there's, I don't think there's that many, there's a lot of acts. I don't think there's that many great, great acts. Um, and it, it went to years ago, I would, I would, I really worried to play amongst the people some of the people I've played with but now I don't worry I have a lot of belief and faith in what I'm doing but I know it's because it comes from the, the audience you know, it comes from that connection and knowing that the belief in the songs you know belief in the dynamics of, of this stuff um, and it's it's the only thing that's still going to be there at the end of it all you know um, yeah I, I owe my voice a lot I think <laughs> <laughs> I worry if I go through some Tom Waits years I might have to change the way I do it uh-huh. In fact, if I do, if I lose my voice, I still do shows, but I do them very differently. They're very strange. I'll sit down, but I get. I usually get a whiskey at that point. I'll sit down, I'll cross my legs, and I'll put, point the mic up like Graham Coxon or something. Mm-hmm. Sort of mumble into the mic, you know, like a Dylan or something. It's great. It's a different thing because I yeah. can't, you know, it just changes the songs. But yeah, I think you always adapt to the. Got to adapt, right? <laughs> Album 13 Ghosts, you said, was a love letter to yourself, which is mm. sort of following on from what you're saying about doing it for yeah. yourself. Why did, how, why did you describe it that way? Okay, cool. I'll, I'll give you a super kind of, as fast as I can do it. Um, so first and foremost, to answer that question, 13 Ghosts was a love letter to myself because it was, those things, were the, the only 13 remaining ghosts, that's how I sort of see songs as little ghosts in the, that live in me that I kind of somehow let out to the world. They sort of get out of my head and start haunting someone else. Um, and that record was the, f- the final 13 tracks that I'd had. So what I mean by that is, so when, you know I mentioned Sam Williams earlier and I made a record for him. So a really quick synopsis of my career, <laughs> um, my career if you can call it that. So 21, got signed um, to EMI publishing they gave me like a label as well so I made a re- I made a record with Sam Williams I didn't like the record it didn't sound it's just I wasn't good enough ultimately the songs weren't the songs, some of the songs were good enough but but not all of them were good enough but I should have been developing really and, and I wasn't I was 
you know, the powers that be said, hey, you know, make a record and let's just put it out. And uh, so I made an album, I didn't really like it. Um, to stop that album coming out, I sort of shelved myself in a sense with the label. Uh, I refused to put, let them release it. And they refused to stop giving me money, to keep giving me any more money, mm-hmm. which is fair enough. And uh, so then I disappeared, I changed my name, I grew a beard, went to France for a bit, went crazy for a while, and I vanished off the face of the earth for like years, I didn't know where I was. was. And then I did a show in London by accident, under a different, under a fake name. And by accident, Samane Argyle saw me from Sony, right? Um, and then he said, oh, you know, as they always do, these goddamn business cards, you know, paper cuts that I get at these shows now. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, yeah, so he, he, was, he was, oh, I want you to come up to London, I want you to play to my MD. And I, I just thought, yeah, whatever, okay. I said, well, look, I'm not coming to London, man. I'm doing any of this. Because um, he, said, he said, you're not Simon Elliot, because that was my fake name. You're not Simon Elliot, you're Psychonomy, right? So, mm. Yeah, yeah. It's a detective as well. Yeah. <laughs> and he was like, wow, you know, um, I want, want to play you to my manager, my MD, Craig Logan at the time at Sony, RCA. But, you, you know, I just, basically, I just, I just was in a weird place. So I said, I'm not, I'm not coming to, to London to play to your guy. He's going to have to come to Cheltenham and I've got a job and work in, in a factory or whatever. So you have to come about 5 or 6 p.m. Now, this is not... I'm trying to get the MD of Sony Records and this head of A&R to drive 200 miles or whatever it was, or 100 miles or whatever it is, mm. for two hours anyway, in, away from London to see me play in a little bedroom after work. Mm. When they're accustomed to everyone. Yeah, like and they did, they, they did, you know, because he said he's wow. not going to come. So he came down um, and it was a weird thing, so they had no water, it was like floods and everything. He came down and... Um, I played him Simple and a few songs off the first album and he loved the re- loved it and pretty much offered me a deal straight away off the back of that. So then I ended up getting a record deal with Sony. And at that point my um, deal with Chrysalis was about to expire because it had been that long, that many years. My actual contract was about to expire with him <laughs> um, and this album that I'd refused to put out. So anyway, I managed to, I walked back into Chrysalis and they said, where the hell have you been? Like, we've been trying to search for you, no one can find you. I said, well, you know, I needed some time. Um, anyway, you know, Sony randomly enough want to sign me now. So he was like, they were like, whoa, Jesus. So they're running around trying to get an extension on this contract um, for the publishing for that record. So then I made, made an album with them. It's about 2007. And I made an album with Sony now, now with a guy called Jazz Rogers, which is not who I wanted to make the record with. I, had a, I wanted to make it live in a studio. And that's what the, they were the terms I signed under. Um, mm-hmm. But as always, you know, you, you, they just say, I'll just do this, just do this. I'm just going to go and see a mate, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, Before you know it, this today. is your album. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Before you know it, here's your record. And um, no real, um, not really any fault of anyone's, but it just didn't end up coming out again. It sounded plastic to me. It was, it was produced in a kind of in the box kind of laptops and all that business. And it just it sounded like, you know, this, this isn't good enough, you know, because for me, it's not good enough. I'm trying to like, make a classic record mm. and, and I just felt it wasn't good enough so anyway so I again blocked that record coming out so now I've made two albums with two major labels and they offered me I, I said look I, I'm not happy with this record um, can you know I said I have to remake the record the way I wanted to do it originally right? 
and they said, uh, this is, I want to do it with Chris Potter at this point. And they said, okay, well, um, we'll see how much money is left. And they said, oh, we've got 30 grand left, which now, I mean, Jesus, I, I'm, I'm still ready for that money. Right? <laughs> but, but, but at the time, I was like, no, it's not enough, because that was 30 grand including marketing spend. So there's no guarantee, basically, on market spend. So most producers at that time would make a record for maybe 20 grand. Wow. So you'd leave 10 grand of contingency for playing musicians and, and a bit of marketing and stuff. But really, you know, effectively, they're saying there's very little left. My lawyer said, well, you know, they're not really giving you much. You're better off telling, asking them for your rights back and um, telling them to give you, know, give you 10 grand for wasting your time, really, because we're in this place because they, their decisions they made. So I managed to get 10 grand to leave. So I managed to get, get out of there. And, and luckily enough, um, not luckily enough, but for me, it, you could see it as luck. Um, everyone on that label got fired about two months later, as labels do. So I would have been dropped anyway. Mm-hmm. Oh, so I nice. so managed to get out of there with some money and not officially be dropped. And obviously that meant the end of Chrysalis deal anyway, because they were like, okay, this guy's now made two albums. <laughs> He's not put them out. And it's not because it's difficult. It's because I just refuse to put out music. That's to, the world doesn't need more rubbish music. It doesn't need stuff that's, you know. And frankly, it wasn't that. Some of it wasn't that great, you know. Yeah, it's got to reflect your vision got, too. So hasn't yeah, it? it's got to be what you want it to sound exactly. Like. And at that point, I was like, right, okay. That's the exact point. I kind of suddenly was living out of a car and didn't have anything going for me, and I just. You know when you type into your email, like you type, you type a word in, like and it suddenly brings up, like in the address bar, it's, mm-hmm. it brings up people, everyone whose name begins with C. Yeah. So I went through A. I can't we contact those producers anymore. Went through B, and then I hit C, and then Chris Potter came up because this was the guy that they, the producer that was gonna maybe tie up my album or whatever. I refused to have it tied up, so I was like, I have to remake it. But so I didn't turn up to me. So I contacted him and said, Would you be up for doing a development deal? I have no money. Like, mm-hmm. not, back then, when you said you had no money, <clears throat> that meant you had five grand or something. No, I had no money. I didn't know where to live. So I was living out of his car. Yeah, said, when I say no money. Yeah. <laughs> and I met up with him and he said, yeah, you know, like, I'll listen to your stuff. And I came down and I played him. I played him some songs. And I knew the reaction I'd get because I, I can rely on that one thing. I can plant the seed and I know that that seed's going to be enough to make them water it themselves. They're going to, you know, they're going to want to do it. So he said, okay, so how much money, how much money have you got? And I quit out of my pockets. That's it, man, like nothing. And he said, well, you're going to have to try and find a way to make, get studio time. I'll make the album for nothing based on a kind of split deal of the copyright of the record or whatever. Mm-hmm. I want to bring my mate in, Don Morley. This is where Don comes in. And I, <clears throat> I was thinking, okay, cool. I get two great producers for no money. So I did a deal with um, Monavalley that Christmas, I think, Monavalley Studios. I, I set it rang them up and said, listen, Joe, who was at Monavalley then, um, Psychonally, I, I, made two, I, made it, I, I made my first album there. Um, I, I managed to get, I've got no deal at the moment, but uh, I'm going to get a deal. It's going to be licensed. I've got, these, I've got Grammy Award-winning producers making this record now, um, you know, Chris and Dom and that. Can I get some downtime? Okay, how much money do you have? Nothing, just for free. Okay, uh, I can give you five days over Christmas. So we, we used it, uh, five days over Christmas. I, the nice. deal was, I think I'd pay them double when I got signed, which I still haven't happened, so I still owe them that money. I'm good mm-hmm. for it. I'm good. <laughs> and, uh, we'll get it. Yeah, they're going to get it. But yeah, that's how the first album came out. And this is a very long-winded way of answering that question, but no, it's, fine, it's so connected to what I'm kind of doing now. Um, 
so, so anyway, we made, we made that first album, and it did take a long time, to like four or five years, because Chris was working with the, the Stones and Blur and these sorts of people, and Don was doing all the um, Bonson and, and working on his own stuff. Mm. So it did take a long, long time, and the industry changed so much in that time. This is like 2000, and I don't remember now, God, uh, 2010, 2004. Yeah, it, it, took, it took a long time. The industry had changed a lot. We made an album though, that I was proud of, not every song on the record I, I was a big fan of, but Chris liked certain songs and Chris hated certain other songs. And mm-hmm. So some songs like, um, I think it's called Play now on the album, um, the first album, which was originally called You Made Me. Um, I didn't, wasn't a big fan of that one, but some, a lot of stuff on that first record was great anyway, like Hurt You and, and uh, Good Night My Lover and stuff. Anyway, I ended up, I ended up getting it licensed years later, about six years after starting that record, I got it licensed or something. It, to uh, or got released with West One Music. West One Music is like taking your car to a junkyard and asking them if they can buy it for parts. <laughs> <laughs> that's what happened basically. The record it was a great record, but I was going to sell it for film and TV and stuff. So that's that's where that's what it's done. Really, it's it's done a lot of that stuff, and that record did quite well. I mean, Coldplay kind of put it on their site, and a few other people sort of backed it. But coming back from my second album, Eject. Um, which was like double album, twenty four track record. So yeah, rarities. And yeah, demos. so those rarities and demos were, they were the two records I shelved with with Sony and with Chris Litz. They were right, and, and right. all the stuff I'd recorded in between. So I had like seventy tracks sitting around. Like I was like, I need to get this stuff out before I can really move on. I have to fill in the gaps. Like why did this guy release a single in two thousand four and he's not released anything? years till 2016 like 12 years and not releasing anything yeah um what the hell's going on so i had to fill in the gaps and start again and go right okay i know i'm a lot older now but do you know what it's it's fine i'm gonna put this record out i put out youth war and joy came out in 2016 and i managed to put eject out it was a successful pledge music campaign um put eject out in 2017 and then 13 ghosts coming back to what you're saying was the the remaining 13 tracks, the remaining 13 tracks that were were left, that, that were like, this stuff needs to come out. It doesn't need to come out because the world needs to hear this song. Or, or it's, It needs to come out because I can't live with this 70 ghosts flying around my head. I can't create a new record. Mm. I can't move forward um, and create music when I've not put out songs which deserve to just be out. And, and you know, if people hate them, I don't really care because I just want them out there. Yeah. So that's why I put you for enjoy out, eject out, and then thirteen ghosts. So I think in in a space of about three years, I put out about seventy songs or something, and then I wrote some stuff for the guy from the Voice, for the guy for the guy in the at the Voice. So that stuff came out, and I'm in a band called Goldbirds, and that stuff came out, and um, but it also in that interim time, when you're looking at the barrel of kind of the gun of I ruined my life and what to do the rest of my life, I'm broke. I'm kind of a loser. It's kind of how I felt, you know, like, Jesus, you know, going nowhere now. It's basically failed. I was like, I need to get a degree or something, you know, because I didn't do very well at school. Mm-hmm. So I did a degree. It took like three or four years to do um, music production. Music production, yeah, yeah. Um, To try and learn how to produce. Because so, I knew I couldn't afford to make records if I couldn't produce it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, it turns out yeah, I still can't afford to <laughs> do it, even with, the, even with those skills. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I got the degree, which helped me sort of get a bank of it. It just made me feel better as a person, like I didn't feel like I wasn't worth anything. I just felt, you know, okay, look, I've got what everyone else has got now. You know, I've got the degree. A kid who got kicked out of school 
who's now got a degree, which is cool, and I could do a master's if I wanted and all that stuff. Yeah, and, I, and, it, and it, but it, through doing that, I made my, I managed to produce my third album, um, Change, which is kind of my fourth album, because 13 Ghost is a rec- an album, as the distributors told me. Mm-hmm. As I tried to put it as an EP, they were like, it's a 13-track EP. You can't have a 13-track EP, that's an album. Yeah. It's, like, it's not an official album, it's, a, it's an EP. They, they didn't see it my way, so it's... it's Class is an album, um, which it probably is cool. It's like a sort of bonus drag or something, you know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so then Change um, is a record I made. It's called Change for those reasons, really. Very different sound and record to anything I've done, actually. Mm-hmm. I've broke this peg I keep playing with. Oh. I'm playing with a peg just because I have to hold something and I snapped it in half. Oh, no. We're going right. to get turfed out we'll of here. To, we'll have to reimburse them with some. I'm sure I can. I can make it. I'm good for it. (laughs) (laughs) It's my motto. and stuff people who do win awards people who win like Grammys and Emmys and all that stuff the one skill or like quality that they've all got is perseverance oh yeah because yeah. no one ever gave up and then won a Grammy you've got to keep going you absolutely yeah. have to keep going I I have a condition that I just cannot quit it's just it won't happen uh, you know I don't have the luxury of being, I mean it must be nice I can understand why people do it because it gets so hard and it's become even more impossible for people now but it's just what else am I going to do you know yeah, well, career. I mean, I can always be a comedian down the line. That's that, that's <laughs> the good thing. All comedians become, uh, all musicians end up becoming comedians and vice versa. And it's quite a genuine thing that I might do one day. I mean, I'm more actually inspired by comedy than I am with music. Like, I get most of my inspiration. Most of my inspiration, right, as a creative person comes from Bill Bryson and comedians, Jerry Seinfeld, and um, podcasts, you know, mm-hmm. and listening to the condition. But the process for me, comedians, is is much more honest than music much more honest like okay there's a lot of artists out there there's so many artists out there brilliant most of them let's be honest are okay there's a few that are great and there's a few that are okay that become great through perseverance and through years and years and years and there's a few that become that start off great and then become okay you know but one thing I that isn't real with, with music I don't believe but I'm talking about when I talk about this about I'm talking about live music at the level I'm at not necessarily the bigger world but I'm talking about more of the grassroots the real grassroots stuff that's out there and music is a little forgiving where comedy isn't so what I mean by that is when you're a comedian you walk into a venue you will get up on that stage you're funny or you're not people laugh or they don't laugh they don't laugh because they're your mate they don't think oh this guy's great oh, he's connect. I connect him so much online you know I love his his funny Twitter thing mm-hmm. they laugh at you because you're a funny comedian and you've you're only a funny comedian because you've understood the craft of it you've understood the the, the risks you're taking to try and get that audience to jump with you over that ravine or fall in the middle mm-hmm. um, and when they all make it to the other side they're like wow this is really great and they're with you but it's not an easy thing but it's so unforgiving you can't be a mediocre you can't be okay and do that well and and I love that I wish music was like that I wish you couldn't 
I wish you had to be brilliant, funny or not, you know, and people love it or they don't. There's yeah. a lot of light hand clapping. You know, it's a lot. Yeah, that was great. But is it, you know, do we need more of that or is that just more noise that's taking up, that's filling up the room when there's, there's two or three things here that I really would like to hear but I can't hear them because, mm. because now, and I think it's become a lot easier in music to copy other artists. And I mean that from like things like X Factor and stuff. Emulate, a perfect emulate. example now if you go back to 1998 or 2002 right nowhere in the history of music did anyone say the word close like this close your eyes there wasn't any of that there wasn't <clears> any of this it wasn't all no one talked like um, James Arthur no one sung like that like but then suddenly Ed Sheeran came along and now everyone sings like that yeah it's like fashion that's not how anyone sung for 70 years and now everyone seems to sound the same. Yeah. You sound like Ellie Goulding, Adele, Ed Sheeran or like James Arthur. Mm-hmm. And it, it drives me crazy. I listen to that Lewis Geezer, Capaldi Geezer. He's always having to go, no. And I do like him. I follow his stuff and I like his, I like his um, songs are good and, and his voice is cool and he kind of looks like a kind of panda. I kind of like that. I like pandas. So that's kind of, and um, but but one thing I thought, I listened to his stuff and I was like, oh, it's disappointing. He's singing. He sounds like a bad James Arthur. And James Arthur's there's nothing wrong with him. Do you know what I mean? He's got a good voice. He's just a perfectly valid act. He looks like an owl, which is strange. But 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 apart from that, he's all right. And and I thought, well, okay, I'll little look into this guy, which I always do because that's the sort of I'm I'm. I'm narcissistic like this and I always look at okay who wrote this song so I listened to that song big hit big hit of his I was like okay he didn't write this there's no way he wrote this song I look at the credits which you have to really hunt for these days if you want to you have to really be narcissistic narcissistic and kind of weird mm. to want to know what the credits are to people's songs but to me as a songwriter it matters because the integrity of a singer-songwriter is hugely important the people I respect write their songs and write their records John Mayer and uh, Ryan Adams and, and the Beatles and things like that it wasn't done by committee whereas nowadays I think it's become less about that it's become more about how do we create bubblegum okay there's 20 people in the world that create great bubblegum let's go there and there's a lot of pressure on us labels actually to do that to get in with these big writers uh, get in with Egg, Egg White and these, these writers out there but I just said to the label look if I can't I'm not, I refused to go to any co-writing sessions. I didn't go to any. Really? I was like, Even I'm writing 100% of everything I'm doing. Because if I'm not good enough to write these songs, I shouldn't have this deal. Someone else should have it. There's a kid out there that should have this deal. Because if I'm going to go and sell my hits that were written basically by somebody else, um, I just didn't see the point. Like, I can't meet Ryan Adams and go, oh, hi, hi, yeah. How's it going, mate? You know what I mean? When this, this guy wrote Heartbreaker and I... I wrote these string of really good hits that were on Radio 1, but actually, let's be honest, they could have been sung by Pink or anyone because it was the same writers. And um, it does sound like I'm a bit of a dig at Lewis and, and those sort of people, but I understand it a bit more now. It's a bit more collaborative world, but I don't know. You look at that, that hit's got five, four of the biggest songwriters in the world on that song, mm. you know? Is it a surprise then that Radio 1 are going to playlist it? Is it a surprise that this album is suddenly going to go really well and the, the label are going to put all their weight behind it? No, it's not. Because we've got a formula here. We've got someone who's sort of unconventional singing to people who will connect with that and we're giving them the biggest songs in the world. And there's nothing wrong with that. But like, 
to me as a creator, I just for some reason it, it I I want to be responsible for what I'm creating. Yeah. And if what I'm creating is not good enough, then I sh- then I didn't deserve to do it. You know, as mm-hmm. far as I'm concerned. And I guess it's all about honing, ho- continually honing and crafting your your process and your sound and your songs. It's about being funny so, or not. It's about being able to get on stage and do it and being real. That's what I love about Amy Winehouse. Why Amy Winehouse wrote, co-wrote with some really big writers. So did uh, Katie Tunstall, for instance. Um, and so does Ed Sheeran, to be fair, but he's a great writer in his own right. He still writes good songs. He still has the ability. So once you've done it, you can kind of, you know, Michael Jackson wrote some amazing songs, but he also had sung songs by the biggest acts and the biggest songwriters of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> But it's, it's, it's whether you, it's funny or not, it's, it's like, for me, it's got nothing to do with like what works, because clearly it works a lot better if you get the machine behind you. But that's not why we're doing what I'm doing, what I'm doing. I'm doing what I'm doing because I'm trying to ask myself, are you great? Are you a good act? Are you up there? And if I'm not, then the answer is no, I'm not. I could become a comedian or something. You know? mm. But um, what, what, what about in this scenario where someone says, <coughs> look, we've got a great song. It's been written by two amazing artists. You can change any of these lyrics if you want to alter them. Uh, and if you really liked this, the, the song or yeah. you, and you came up with a melody, would you then... Yeah, I think, I, think I have done a few... I have since done some co-writing because I wrote for other people. When you write for other people, you have to gamble with this co-writing world. Um, because that's just it's all about the collaborative nature of I do quote mark air quote marks collaborate the more people get rich off a song the better the songs they do mm-hmm. um, so I've done a lot of them kind of writing things for other people and some of those things I've actually ended up putting out myself I was just so tired of them hanging around I was like I'm going to put this out but funny enough my audience don't really re- have never really reacted to those songs even though they're bigger songs they, they much more react to the things that are real um, yeah. and they're no less real so in that circumstance it's, it's funny because I've put out three albums worth of material so far and every, more or less everything's been written by me I mean 100% of it has really uh, there's a few things that, that that have some co-writing names on them but they really didn't do anything they just were there because they were recording the song mm-hmm. um, that's an amazing achievement really so like, now I'm over that rare. bubble I'm over that bubble so now now I wouldn't I don't feel insecure in myself as a writer. See that a lot of those things come off insecurities. Like, I would refuse to go in with um, Guy Chambers and those people before because, or Ian Archer or those people, because, you know, the people I respected made their music. I'm a singer songwriter. I should be able to write my own songs. Mm-hmm. Noel Gallagher said recently on a podcast <coughs> that him and Johnny Marr more or less are the only ones that he knows that write their own songs. Um, everyone else, he was like our kid, even our kid, you know, and all that, and you know, he, he the, and it's Liam, Liam Gallagher said it himself, you know, he's like, well, I'm not a songwriter, am I? You know, I've written some great songs, but you know, this is this is the way it goes. I think that, but he's got enough confidence in himself now. Even him at the top of his game has enough confidence in who he is to be able to do that and not feel like he's cheating in any way. It's like, well, Noel's not writing for me. By the way, I've got a really good Oasis track called Stay, which if Liam hears, he should sing on his next record. Really? Yeah, it's a really good song. I'd like to get it to him, but I don't know how that happened. How can you get to him? It's just Noel Gallagher. It just sounds like it was written by Noel Gallagher in 1995, you know. Uh-huh. I don't know how I'm going to get it to him. Do like, you know, he's we'll too find scary out his manager or his agent or... 
You go, oh um, man, I'll give it a listen to me, yeah, sorted. <laughs> all that. And uh, yeah, um, he's kind of, so I don't mind that world, but if you think about it, so I sound, it does probably sound like I'm moaning about like those people, like, I'm not, but, but it just changes the paradigm. So if that's the norm, from, from, from just from a, a person online that listens to music out there, if the norm is that this new solo artist has this amazing songs, the best songs we've heard in the bloody world, you know, constructed, poppy, they're great. Perfect arrangements. Yeah, perfect arrangements. Then we can't keep up. You know, a lot of the time we can't keep up. We're trying to compete with like a convention of writers that are the biggest writers out there. How do we keep up? Well, we keep up by becoming great ourselves, like better at writing ourselves. But, um... I don't know. I suppose I'm talking about pop music mainly, but I think the music's become quite homogenised, isn't it? So it's all pop, really. Yeah, and I think <coughs> so. You like collaboration for everything is happening across the board now, like cross pollination of YouTube channels, where mm. a big YouTuber gets another big YouTuber, and then they tap into another market. It's sort of um, yeah, the way things are going. Maybe taking less pressure off. It's, off it's actually quite enjoyable. People like me have a fairly archaic view of this stuff, and we do, we end up coming round to the ideas of it. I just think that a bit of it's cool. Like I'm nicking Ed Sheeran's idea for the collaboration to say I'm going to do that. Uh, yeah, so what's I'm that? Do, yeah, you were doing I'm, a collaboration. I'm doing a collaboration alongside what I'm doing, sort of like as a, as an arc, as like a separate subplot. There's going to be continuous kind of uh, collaboration, collaborative EPs. Um, just because I've got so much stuff that I write isn't for me you know 50% of the music I write doesn't really work for me at all because like, mm-hmm. I don't have an agent I don't have a manager I don't have labels or deals or anything like um, I can't get it to people but it'd be good to it, it's also I'm learning now there's the, the collaborative thing in that world see that's collaboration for creation though. that's like getting together and making a fire with someone you know like that's not oh we're going to take this guy's massive song because you've got no songs of your own Mm. And we're going to make you the biggest star in the world. Yeah, like a fusion. Once of you two. shake those hands. It's like when you go on the X Factor, I've been, I think every year I get asked to go on by some media company or something, The Voice. And I don't, I, there was one year I very nearly went and I didn't turn up. Because they contacted me and said, okay, you're going to go on The Voice. We can guarantee you'll get through to the live shows. Mm. You're going to be in the last however many there are. What? You mean these TV programmes are fake? Yes. Yeah, they're fake and they they know who's gonna win. I've been told the winner of those shows before the shows have started by a friend of mine every year who works with the shows. So they're a load of rubbish. But one thing they are really good at is they massively they're brilliant at marketing stuff. And it's Exposure, and, and yeah, there has been huge. some good acts that have, that have come through that model for sure. Um and I can see why artists do it, because the temptation to go, Well, I can sing and get to millions of people, still to this day Live like people TV. say to me like why, why, why don't you just go on one of those shows, sing, and people will hear you sing. In fact, there was a, there was a guy, I did a, I did a, like a video thing uh, in London, and what, there was a guy in the crowd who, I don't know who he was, he was just, he was, a, he was an alright guy, he was nice enough, like, he, was a, he wasn't sort of a necessarily a massive, the type of person you would expect to be into my music. Mm-hmm. He was sort of a bit like, alright mate, and, and I, it, it, he said to me, why don't you go on X Factor? And I was like, well, you know, I said, you know, once you do that, you, you've got to win it or nothing. Do you know what I mean? If you don't, if I don't win a show like that, 
what that's it for me. I can't go back and get the respect from, you know, the underground respect when I've jigged my ass on stage like on TV. Yeah. And uh, and he said, yeah, but people. He said, yeah, but more people will hear you sing, and I. I had no comeback to that. It was like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like, he's right. Like, millions of people can hear you sing in one night, or you can spend 30 years trying to get a few people to hear you sing. Mm-hmm. So, in actual fact, he has got a complete point, and there's just something in me that stops me jumping over that thing. There's yeah. a trade-off. I'd like, follow that gut reaction. Yeah, I just couldn't do it. I just Some people f- work and fit in that model. And some people are great at that and they're perfect for that. But some people, I just would be cheating myself. I would rather fail my way. Mm. And I wonder whether the audience that you get from doing that are the sort of audience that you'd want, you know? Like yeah. It's, it's a mainstream television programme on ITV. I wrote a song with a guy that won one of those shows. And I said to him, I was brought into this, this behind enemy lines in one of these labels. They're the right. They're the writing rooms. Of course they do. And uh, I bought in. I wrote the song. And I bought it in. And I said, "Here's the song." You know, it was funny. And he said, "I think he said to me, you're the only person that's been really directing me.'" I said, uh, "Enjoy this, you know, because it's gonna go in about two years. You, you're screwed. You've either got to make a record like in the next six months, or start looking for a job, man, because." I said I'm not going to try and be negative I'm just saying that like this thing you've done winning a show like this is great all the Asda mums are going to love what you do so make a record for these people and use it as a vehicle but he wanted to make like Biffy Cairo stuff or he, I don't know what he wanted to do mm-hmm. the poetic yeah it's just like when you're going for that market ain't going to be ready, ready for you yet you know even like Robert, Robert Williams had an arc you know um, but I think the good thing about those shows is you get people like Will Young who've got a great voice and you get you get you know Leona Lewis and there's a few people that suit the model completely I think but for the most part I just see a lot of people that should just kind of go their own way really with it um, mm-hmm. put the time in and kind of exactly realise that there is no there is no destination at all it's only the steps it's nothing to, it's only the more it's never the bricks definitely and, and going back to what we you originally said <laughs> right at the beginning about success like I think when you're starting out you visualise success as being this big block of time in your life that was like those years were successful but it's not it doesn't feel like that um, from my point of view perhaps because it's more like a transient moment of success and then something happens and it's not great so yeah I think perception of success and and for that for people like that who win those sorts of programmes there's a huge spike of like success but then a massive it's drop really down if it, does, health, if it does. Like, yeah exactly they really struggle and they're, they're not worse artists because they're going on a show like that they're, no, they're not less talented and they're just you know more people are you sing you know what I mean yeah. they, they got it right and there's nothing wrong with that and that's been delivered as the way you are an artist now you go on a show like that why wouldn't you it's not why would you spend years playing spit and sawdust places um, and, and, but I think the success is the paradigms of success it's a funny relationship between creators and, and, and this moment of success. And I've really struggled with it. I've had a lot of people over the years ask me, oh, sort of manager types say, oh, you know, what, a, what, are you, what is success though? What is success? I'm like, well, of course, success is playing at Glastonbury. It's having millions of fans. It's having the ability to continually make records. It's having a fan base that exists 
of people that you don't know all their names. Mm. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's you know what it is. It's obviously you're a successful act, and you're kind of a well-known act. That's to me is what a successful act is, but it isn't what a successful person is. It's not what a successful creative person is, and I think nowadays, like the success is the steps, the success is the process. That's the reward. It's never. The end game's not important. Look at Ed Sheeran. Yeah. He's probably he looks like a depressed guy, man. Doesn't look like a happy geezer. Like he probably is perfectly fine, and I'm I'm sure. Um, but he's he's really worked a long time. He's toured and toured and toured and done all that stuff. So all power to what he's done. But it's the idea that selling loads of records, headlining Glastonbury, doing those things is enough to somehow wrangle those ghosts inside him. Yeah. I don't think like it is totally enough. Resolved. I don't think it is enough. And I think to me, like people like David Gray and Damien Rice and David Ford and a lot of art, a lot of Davids. Um, yeah. Anyone called David, basically. Uh, <laughs> but, but even Gervais, look at Ricky Gervais, you know, he didn't, he didn't have any major successes at all until very late in life. Yeah. And Noel Gallagher was a lot older before he really had any. But he, before, so before Noel Gallagher was obviously signed for the creation, did, became Oasis. You know, he was still massively successful. He was he was the roadie for the spiral carpets touring the world, yes, you know, he was, yeah, living yeah, it up, was. doing what he wants to do. He, and he was working in building sites in between and doing that. But my point is that success isn't about the paradigms of it have changed, you know. It's not it isn't about what it used to be about. Mm. It's I find just as much success in 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 connecting with people and inspiring people and people telling me, um, like this song or just having friends, you know, just like being able to get a coffee with a mate and to be able to live your life, you know. they nearly got to double figures how many jobs I had mm. and I was doing that I'm chasing trying to get enough money to produce, mix my record that was why I was doing that um, but I, in, in doing that uh, I worked in a school sort of just sort of t- talking and helping out these kids that senior school these kids that kind of were being forgotten and lost in the cracks of the school system which, which is awful the school mm-hmm. system in this country is terrible especially these academy schools and these kids um, especially one I had connected, connected with um, he was such a talented artist man such a talented mind much more um, he's, got, he's got so much going for him you know and another kid uh, who, who made music as well uh, who I connected with but it that's that was one of the most successful things I've done you know just being able to remotely just show them to see them sort of smile you know and laugh and, and and to tell them yeah yeah this is this is not that school's not that important mate do you know what I mean don't worry about it you'll be fine you know what I mean mm. and yeah and the gratification of them maybe <coughs> opening up have you ever done community music work yeah, yeah. I did a bit of it yeah it was kind of felt like that to be honest yeah, it's really I, did this, I did this um, this year one of the most rewarding things I did was this walk I did a walk for um I actually did it for me and then I decided to bring a charity in so I did it for Rocking Horse in Brighton do like a children's charity to do things for like uh, 
uh, children's hospitals like a great Ormond Street, but but like the babies in Brighton, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> I did a walk. I walked from like I walked from like it was two hundred and fifty miles, coast to coast. Yeah, coast yeah. to coast. And I raised, I think I raised one thousand five hundred or something. But just to sort of see where it's going, it's going to go to help inspire these kids with the music department they can have and things like that. And and I'm going to go in and help them work with that stuff and sort of do some like things like that and I, even when I do tours I try to sort of get involved with that stuff because there's nothing more rewarding than that man like you know you play Notting Hill Arts Club you heard like Notting Hill Arts Club there's no success in that like mm-hmm. <clears throat> place stinks it's in a horrible sort of basement it's full of grumpy kind of promoters and people handing out stupid business cards I say this is another thing these gigs now have become two forms so you've got the people that want to be there which are amazing and I connect with those people and then you've got all these kind of Z-list not even industry people like they're people that like have a lot of money so they can afford to kind of just loaf about handing out cards and they usually come at you oh I've got a label I've got this and you think oh, come on man do you know what I mean like, I don't need this no one needs this like it's sort of self-gratifying yeah. it, it clogs up the thing because behind all that you feel like you're saying look mate I ain't got any money so you know there's no point in talking to me about anything because managers only want to manage you if they can make a load of money out of, you know, a monthly amount of money. Uh, PR people want two grand a month, like radio people want money. like, And that's no problem because they're, they're in an industry too, they've got to earn money and they've been hit by the changes of the industry just the same as we have. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. it does create, they provide a service and when you provide a service to a demographic of hungry desperate artists that maybe go through periods of time where they feel down and like they're not getting anywhere and they feel like if I just pay this I'm going to get be able to get PR and if I just get a bit of radio I'm just going to do this and I'm just going to do that before you jump through those hoops you get to the end of it and you're destroyed and you've got 10 years of paying back credit cards and debt and you, you try making records then you know it's there is a reality to to to, to that side of it that really costs people more than money but it really costs people their sort of mind you know because there's a chasing that desperation yeah you've got to if they've realistic. got to be able to see the successes that are in front of them the real things that really matter um, and that is the shows that is the people that care it's the individuals that the photographers that come out every every night to take pictures and, and, and just to support the, the scene you know mm. it's the sound guys it's the people you meet it's the whole thing and, and to be honest that is the most rewarding part of the success, and yeah, as long and as you're satisfied that, you in those lose. things, I think yeah. is an important part, isn't and it? You've got, like, to be, you've got to be prepared to fail. Like if if you have this paradigm of failure, you've got to be prepared to because we all know, like you're going to fail a lot more times than you're going to succeed. Yeah, and that's a learning process. It's like you don't really <coughs> learn when you're really good. That you can have something that went really, really well. And you're like, I don't know how that happened, but when yeah. you fuck think, when things go wrong, you know you can go, ah, oh, it was because of this. It's, like it's a massively important learning process it is, to be yeah. not successful for a while. You mentioned David Ford there. I was trying to remember his name because I played football with him in Eastbourne wow, for okay, ages. Yeah. And um, someone was like, oh, he's a bit of a singer-songwriter, David. And he's a fucking good footballer, too. He was, like, one of the really better yeah, I think I players. Play and, um, and, yeah, I sort of Googled him, and I was like, holy fuck, he's, like... He's, he's a great... You should try and get do an interview with him, man. He's literally, like... He'd, he'd be brilliant so I'd love to hear that yeah because he, he's like, really good friends with the guys in Eastbourne isn't he the, yeah because he comes from that scene in Eastbourne so I, I I toured with him in 2000 and 
it was towards the end of my deal with it was just before I vanished really it was one of the things that made me kind of vanish but it, 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 I did a tour I had a manager at the time who was very good at getting deals and not very good at doing much else mm-hmm. so he got me the deal and I eternally grateful to, for that you know for getting the deal in the first place and then he wasn't that great and then I, I ended up getting a different manager a guy called Sam, Paul Samuels I think he managed raconteurs and he managed Brendan Benson I think I think it, it wasn't raconteurs he managed Brendan Benson out of the raconteurs and then, so anyway he was just brought in by the label to sort of caretaker manager type thing they paid him a retainer but one of the things he really did which was great was he got me in it he got I was with an agency I had a booking agent at that time and they got me uh, he and they got me on this David Ford tour and I was like I didn't know much about David Ford at the time so I went and did this this, this tour with him and it was so amazing you know it's just wow what a great artist just the way and he blew me off stage man every night and that was the last time anyone's done that, do you know what I mean? I, I'm not mm. trying to say that from an arrogant point of view, but no one's, I've never let that happen again, you know? It's never going to happen again, unless I'm, you know, playing with the calibre of artists that I really, truly, like, respect, because yeah. he really just absolutely taught me something about live music, and it, it was painful to me to play those shows because I knew that I was getting the performance bit kind of right, but I was very in a dark place, like, um, I was getting the performance thing kind of right, but the songs I was playing were rubbish, you know, uh, the first song I played, I mean, I wouldn't, I didn't I wouldn't blow my nose of it now, it was a rubbish song, but the performance of the song was more enigmatic than the, uh, yeah, than mm-hmm. the song itself, and I had a little drum machine, and it was just a pretty crappy performance from my point of view, but he was so on it, this was the time of his first record, and his band were great, and, um, just it was like a absolute I was like I made a mental note right okay this is where I've got to get to if it's not at this point and I'm talking about as a singer like he's not like Celine Dion or something do you know what I mean he's mm-hmm. it's just his presence and how much of a heart on the sleeve he was his yeah. record you know his, 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 his records he was a real artist in that respect and it was just like this guy and he remember towards the end of the thing this is funny because it's, it's the reason I'm playing Dingwalls actually because the last time I played Dingles, I supported David Ford in 2006. Um, and I didn't play very well. I was really busy. But I, I, I was just like realised at that point, you know what, well, this is the last day of the tour. This guy's got it going on. I'm just not in a good, a good place. And he bought me a um, really sweet sort of thing that is I now know is part of the touring etiquette. If you're supporting someone, a headline band will buy the support band a record that he bought me blue shoes, I think, uh, Blue Valentine by um, Tom Waits, who he's a big fan of. And um, he bought me that, and it was really touching because I didn't really hung out with him. Like, I was talking about his band, like Francis and a few other people, but I didn't really, he's quite an, an old guy to hang out with, so I didn't really, he's not the sort of guy you're just going to go and hang out with. And they were really accommodating, but it's just, I was probably just a bit of a weird guy anyway at that time. But he, so he played the He Headline Dingwalls, and I supported him. And I made me mental know that one day I'm going to come back here when I'm ready as a real artist and I'm going to do the same. So that it's funny now that it's, it was the reason I booked Dingles as the crowning really nice. kind of point of this arc, you know, because my album will be out by the 17th of July next year. It'll be the album launch of that. But it's a really important thing because if, if I cannot get real fans, 
like not just the fans I have now, but I'll add to that through different mediums and different ways of connecting with people. If I can't make enough people trip over it, um, then that show will just be half empty, and that's mm-hmm. fine. If that's where it's at, it's at. But the gig's going to happen regardless. It's but great to go full circle. And it like, is, yeah. And, and, to, and, and I like, like to overcome t- that. rectify these things, and that's what yeah. the, each date has been a specific emotional reason why I, I'm playing that specific venue. As a re- I played Bet City Trot with this tiny venue when I, when I first got a uh, deal and stuff. And it's, it's, it's this kind of full circle thing and rectifying it, um, making sure that... So when I come off that stage, it's like, right, great, now, now it's the next, you know. How do I get from here to the Scarlet? How do I get from the Scarlet to Union Chapel? How do I get from Union Chapel to the Roundhouse? How do, how do I, like, get... Start get. I need to get an agent. You know, that's a, I, I, I genuinely need a team. Like, there's not that any agents that are out there that are going to pay any attention. But I genuinely, I'm in a band as well. Right, I'm in a band with Goldbirds, and um, we recently, not recently, a few years ago, before the band kind of changed again for the millionth time, we got very close to getting booking agent. We had the heads of the biggest agencies out there, and they're all about seventy the heads of these agencies, <laughs> and they did a showcase. It cost us you know, four or five hundred quid to put together it was a big expensive studio you know and they loved it man and they said oh this is amazing you know unbelievable and they sent down the heads of their A&R people who are obviously younger and more kind of uh, um, they have a finger on the pulse yeah finger on the pulse and they said yeah you're an amazing band man like this is one of the best things I've heard in years and uh, I would never sign it I don't, we don't we can't, we don't take on people we like or we think are great. <laughs> um, you haven't got a buzz online. We're like yeah, but we're gonna be fans. We're like I know. Like isn't that good though? You, I think you can you you can I think you can persuade them into signing you because of that reason. Yeah. Look, we, okay. What we'll do is we'll get off the internet. That would be a good move. Like we'll I get actually, off it yeah. so people can't find us. Like if I can't if I see a band live and I can't find their music online. I am desperate to hear it. You've got to go to the so shows. Yeah, you've got to go to the shows. I went the opposite way and just sat there and said, uh, I said he should be sacked. I said, mate, of all due respect, you know, you should be fired because your job is to discover acts. Yeah. And anyone that sees our band is going to be converted. Exactly. So therefore, we're a band that's going to break live. So you should be taking us on. And you just told me that you wouldn't even come and see a band that came from London and things like that and you won't sign a band because you like me I said you're in a power, position of power you should be fired and it's not because you're passing on my band or me or whatever you're wrong anyway about that but yeah. like well, I, I it's guess... because you won't it's because there's a load of bands out there right now that can't afford that PR engine that are brilliant and the fact is is that half the problem is that industry types like you turn around and say you're not getting involved because there's yeah. not these stats that can be bought and faked anyway. So exactly, it's like, I, I reckon he's like he's. It's not necessarily his opinion or his point of view. It's like it's it, his rules. It's the, the yeah the product of he's right of you know. what he's around. Yeah. But what you could say to him in that situation is, look, you can make a change here. You can be different in your approach. If all of your mates are not signing people because mm-hmm. they haven't got an online following, but they fucking love the music. Yeah. Why don't you be different? Why don't you sign to people who have got no following and show like yeah, everyone else really that that doesn't They're, they're the tastemakers, actually. They do. They, 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 he said, oh, you don't understand. There's no, there is no gatekeepers. So, yes, there is. There right? are, of course. There's there gatekeepers are. and you have, the, yeah. you have the power to stop following this narrow path of stats. If you want the stats and you want the buzz, fine, we'll come back. And that's what I'm doing now. I'm going to get this, these things, but I'm going to earn them. But 
it's not going to. Uh, I wouldn't be signing to him anyway. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, you know, I get it. You know, we're all in. We're all in the same. We're all in the same place. I know it's a little bit like that for um, the Great Escape here in Brighton. I yeah. know that if you don't have uh, like a few uh, online accounts, that you they're straight away not interested in you, which um, sort of connects David Ford and the and the studio in Eastbourne a bit, because Phil, do you know Phil Nelson who runs who set up yeah. the Great Escape? I don't know him actually. No, I don't. I played. I did play Great Escape a while back, but it was. You know, I, I, again in quote marks. I mean, I'm playing yeah. Great Escape. What actually that means, just for the layman, is that I'm paying a PR agent six hundred pound a month, and they're putting me on some crap gig, to a bunch of Z listers that that are putting it in their diary for the day. Because really, it's just a big hangout for industry guys to go and drink beer all day. Yeah, people have said. <laughs> I know I sound cynical, but like it is. It, I'm not trying to sound cynical. I'm just trying to. There's not enough. There is not enough. There's not enough people just talking it like it is for the reality of the people that are we're, we're all out there doing it we're all kind of creators we all kind of know and it's not negative it's just it's just there's a reality to these things it's not this idea someone said to me recently oh I can get you on um, I don't know some festival I think it was like Tea in a Park one of the ones that you know, Isle of Wight I was in Isle of Wight festival oh, nice. so, oh, that's great you know but I'll play there when I've got fans to play there you know, do you know what I mean? Like, I want to play there because there's a demand for me to play there, not just because a connection got me in. Like, mm. And I know I have some really weird morals that really stop yeah, getting in the way of my own success, <laughs> but I just, it's just, I can't help it, man. I just have to, <laughs> I should just jump at these things. That, this yeah, is why you having a manager is good, because they just, they, they, they just deal with it. people who've been in bands and they've said if you lose the bassist we'll sign you or if you you know like mm. lose the fat guy yeah and then and, and then, you, then you've got like the brand image and you're like what do you mean i am the fat guy <laughs> 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 you're like i'm just gonna find myself no it's I, it, it is a weird thing it's funny i i try now to ignore a lot of that stuff because i unfortunately i you know i come from that period have you talked to a lot of people from the generation i come from um we remember what it was like before. We remember we remember that kind of things. So we we kind of we're kind of looking at these things and thinking, okay, well, there was a time when I a director of uh, Chrysalis, uh, Alison Donald at the time, uh, said, "Oh yeah, we only sign people." This is when MySpace was starting up. We only sign people now that have over five thousand MySpace friends. I just thought, what the hell are you talking about? You know, you're a publishing company. I just think these people, this failing, I know why, because it creates an ecosystem of hunger where everyone's kind of, oh, I can't back the wrong horse. I've got to make sure all my things are lined up. But it can, unfortunately, create a manipulation where you start paying for, like, YouTube views and you start trying to yeah. get your streams up. You start trying to do this and you start trying to think, okay, well, what, what, I, need, what I need now is, is this new hoop arrives. So what I need now is a load of Spotify uh, playlists and what I need now is this and what I need now it's like look I've got news for you what you need is all of it what we all need is an engine we need yeah. record deals and we need we need we need people with money and we need um, people to finance what we're doing but really 
taking all that away, actually what we need is just to be enjoying what we're doing and writing good songs good and being music. good, being yeah. good yeah, because that's the main that's thing. the most important that thing the like big checkbox of this all of this yeah stuff. and i think it does is get it good music? it gets ignored yes. because we're so focused on on chasing these tick lists of things i was looking on um i'm sort of shouting down a lot of people that may or may or one day be interested in me but so <sighs> i was looking on AWOL's tick list of things AWOL is artists without a label thing right Artists without a label, that's what oh, it stands right. for, right? I see. And there's a tick list to, to kind of get, to, you know, get in with them. And the tick list is like, definition of being a big act. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what you need is, a, is all this stuff you need, and then we'll look at you. I just think, you know what, that's ridiculous. You know, it's like, come on. I can it's get that stuff, songs. and I can be rubbish. Yeah. yeah. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. Like, or I can be, I can not have that stuff and be good. So, it it to to sort of almost have a checklist of saying don't get in touch unless you have these things. Yeah, it's not that formula. It's bizarre. It? It's like, it's, yeah, it should be about the music, really. Exactly. I I remember what I was going to say about Phil Nelson. So you were saying about um, you're one of your a manager would put you in a position where you you know uh, they they make you do stuff perhaps out of your comfort zone mm. that was um maybe you didn't think it was going to be good and they have the oversight to go, actually, I know this is going to be good for you. So yeah, Phil Nelson was a manager of a few different bands and he had a thing called the Joker card that he, he was able to play like once a year or something. Oh, so, wow, okay. So he, could, he would demand that they played a gig and it would be his call and they couldn't get out of it. It was his Joker card that he was allowed to do to say, you're going to play this gig, I know it's going to be good for you. And even if there was like, I can't remember, it was the guy from Aqualung he was talking to to try and get him to play a gig in Japan and he was like um, maybe struggling with some family issues yeah. and uh, but yeah Phil played his joker <clears throat> card and it ended up being like a really really be- beneficial thing Wow. so I think yeah having a manager that uh, has a creative role there oh, is massively not just, important not just massively important and, and uh, thinking like that I kind of the, the managers I've had like the people that took me on I've had like 25 managers something crazy I've had more managers than Chelsea and uh, I when you've had that many, you start to realise the problem's you. you know? But, uh, like, <laughs> like. And the, the solution. Yeah, the, well. the solution's me and the problem's me. And, I, yeah. and the managers I've had taken me on because they knew they could get a deal with a specific person. So they're kind of thinking like that. They're like, um, okay, I know I'm going to get. I know this person I know is going to buy it. So they'll put you on a show. I need you to play this show. I need you to do this sort of thing. But it's that kind of having that help, having that help with managerial stuff is really like massively important I think like definitely I, but I just I do think that it's kind of the more I want it and I, I need those things and I haven't got as I said I haven't got manager I haven't got an agent I haven't got record deals publishing deals nothing people think I have I think a lot of people that follow my music think I'm signed or something I'm, I have my own label my own little crappy label which in today's world means I've got font book you know I can create a logo on font book and that's my company mm-hmm. so a, a record label now is just a specific way of writing <laughs> like a typeface you know so I have a really good typeface for, for, for the words dead rabbit so that's my label and I put things out under that and but I don't have any of that stuff but I don't worry about it as much as I used to I, I do get sort of a bit kind of sped up of spending most of my days doing like the admin side of things rather than writing yeah, and I do wish I do miss the, I miss the, having a team of people that can help with stuff because push things forward. Yeah, push yeah. things forward. But 
you know, if I was willing to pay like a manager, like most managers now will only do it for money, like really, they'll, there's very few that will put in, it takes two or three years to, to break an act, you know, really, from the ground up. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of work to ask a manager to put in for nothing. So, so they, rightly so, they ask for something that they can, they can um, sustain themselves with. Problem is, is that they're asking that from someone who hasn't got it, you know, half the time. So it's, it's um, not just them, but the, but the whole industry is like that, set up in a very price-structured way. I definitely think, I've, I've made that point a few times in this podcast, that classism within music in the independent scene has become really, like, defined. It doesn't get talked about at all. Mm-hmm. But like I'd say, ninety percent of the artists that I know have either rich parents, or well off, or um, have they're paying. They have a team. They have a, they have a manager. They have this person, that person. Or they're paying them. Of course, they have them. Like I can have those things if I pay them. Mm-hmm. But where's the money going to come from? Yeah. How do you afford to live in the middle of London, and pay a team? And you're trying to tell me you're a struggling artist? Come on, like you yeah, know, some people like there's a difference. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with having privilege. There's nothing wrong with having support, but I don't know therefore why it's hidden away. Like, do you know what I mean? It's, it's not cool. It's not cool, I suppose, is it? But it, it shouldn't be it's hidden away. Really. It should just be cool. What it is? It's great to have those things. It's great to have the support network in whichever way, even if it's emotional support. It's great to have that. Um, but what it does. And it isn't the fault of the person who's got the money. It isn't the fault of their circumstance. But what a knock-on effect from those things is an ecosystem around the industry, like a kind of bubble, starts to create where there's 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 money to be made. So there's PR companies and these radio all these kind of people can charge a monthly fee to these people because there is a money there is money there. Mm-hmm. But what happens to that ten percent? What happens to like the ten percent that can't afford that? Well, I'll tell you what happens to the 10% they can't afford that. They can't afford the PR, they can't afford this, they can't afford that. So f- they struggle along themselves. 5% of those, 50% of that 10% will quit because they get so depressed that they're so like, I've been doing this 20 years, my life's going down the pan, I can't do this anymore. And they quit and fair mm-hmm. enough to them, you know. Then that leaves like the, the remaining 5%. And that's kind of where I sit. <laughs> the people that are so either deluded or determined and I think there's a thin line maybe they come a bit both a healthy a healthy dollop of both is probably helpful yeah, yeah um, but absolutely one million percent determined to not succeed in that way of success that we see it but actually mm-hmm. to connect and they, they start to realize you know what it's inward my songs are the only things that are there before and the only things that are going to be there after mm-hmm. and people liking those songs and connecting with humans and connecting with people on that level and playing shows and, and collecting a, an audience but it's when you have that we're us five percent we realized that we probably got five or six years of doing it like this these steps all the way before we start to see any significant sort of signs of what the paradigms of success would be yeah. to sustain but sustainability is a really hard tricky thing i think for all of us uh, us five percent it's really expensive to make records it's really expensive to mix to make videos to distribute, to pay PR, to pay radio, to pay management. So radio management, PR goes straight out of the way. You can't do that. So you mm. have to try and get it different ways. Yeah, um, I would maybe try and look at um, how can it be done without those massive upfront fees, without that. Could, could that 20 grand be reduced to two grand? 
Yeah, I think it can, and I think I actually think it can be done the minute you start to stop thinking big and start to think small and appreciate the steps, appreciate the process. That's kind of why I walked away from it before. It's because I had to fall in love with the process again because mm-hmm. I lived with the process. I didn't live with this moment, this destination. I lived with the process. And if you don't enjoy that process, if you don't love that process and understand it, I, you, you can't go through the emotional roller coasters that it provides. You have to love the process. So to me, there is no making it. I've already made it in my head because it's... it's there's people that love my, my music and that's, you know, and there's people that connect with what I'm doing and there's people I connect with that love what yeah. they're doing and yeah. David Ford bringing it back to him, you know, he's still doing it. I think he really, he wrote a book, I think, it's something like How to Be Unsuccessful, I think it's called something like How to Be Unsuccessful in the Music Industry or something like that. It's, and enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, 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 it was, it was cool. like, because he's had a million deals and he's been up and down but he's still doing it because when he closes the door his music's still there for him and I think that these are the artists that um, I respect and uh, you know I know there's a lot of PR unfortunately there's a downside which is the PR the PR and lobbying that's promoted the idea of the independent artist like the idea that grime just comes out of nowhere like come on five years before grime was huge these artists were all topping the gospel charts they were all winning mobile awards his gospel movement dressed up as grime mm. but it's gospel music and part of the paradigms and the laws of, of that world of gospel music is that the, the supporters support it you know a little bit like a kind of punk crowd support hardcore punk bands and, and blues is, people go to folk festival to see folk music they don't go to see certain acts or blues festivals you don't get that for contemporary music. You don't get that for like rock and roll. You don't get. You're gonna know what bands. You want to know what bands are playing if you're gonna waste time in a field, mm. you know. But it, but but people go to you know these things is a little bit like they go to that. So gospel is a movement, and and it not it's not really a movement, but musically the people that listen to it and support it are supporting the whole message of what it stands for. Yeah. And what it stands for is harmony and connection with people and stuff. So. But there's a lot of this idea. I, what I'm talking about, like, is a lot of you see these interviews on like BBC Breakfast News where they talk about, isn't it amazing that live music's doing so well? Uh, yeah, it's doing great. That's why record. That's why music venues are closing down every month. Mm-hmm. You know, it's doing so well that you know, Twelve Bar Club has to close its doors. Borderline has to close its doors. Like, notorious venues that have been successful for fifty years are closing their doors. Yeah, that's how well it's doing. The high street is yeah. a similar thing. I think online has just taken over all of our lives. Hasn't it has, it? and I and I think that I think that live the big live acts are doing fine. Yeah, but 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 the but the it's there there are paradigms. The set the BBC sound of two thousand. I think the BBC sound of two thousand and fifteen or something was Sam Smith or something like that who previously, the previous year and a half before, had already had four number ones featuring on the biggest acts <laughs> out there. It's like, there's an idea that <clears throat> we, as an unsigned people, can easily just waltz straight into the, to the mainstream of music, which is just not true. I mean, yeah. and I think the problem is, is there is a, the reason I made that point is that there is a point for, say, an independent act, a band or whatever, there's a point when they realise that it's not that straightforward. That really messes with their heads, mm-hmm. their money, messes with their bank accounts, their personal living situations, their relationships, it's hard on their girlfriends and their and their boyfriends and, and it's hard on their families. And it really 
they're, they're thinking, well, this is how it's meant to be. It didn't work for us, so maybe we're terrible. Maybe, maybe we're just wasting our lives. Maybe we're doing it wrong. Maybe doing it wrong. Yeah. And, so, and then, oh, wait a minute, though. The, the, I, if I pay for this PR person, I pay for this, if I pay for that, it, it, that's what we should be doing. And it const- the more you jump through those hoops, the more you realise that the, there's an infrastructure out there that's born to create new hoops. Mm-hmm. You can't jump through any of these hoops. You have to build it from the ground. And the truth is, it is every single grain of, of um, sand. It's not, it's not the whole, it's not this kind of waltzing forth idea of going global, you know. Yeah. Unless think... you're like 14 and you're like Justin Bieber or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, rare cases are definite exceptions. But yeah, I think growing growing an, a natural audience and having people that are genuinely interested and yeah. uh, that connect on your live shows is... Is, is the most important thing like you say the success is the journey and enjoying that journey mm. and whatever comes from you. The, the weird thing about success is that you never choose for it to happen you can't control whether it happens or not it just happens to you from other people's response to what yeah. you're doing so if your objective is to be successful it's very unlikely and it also gives you this idea it's perception it's, it's all perception it's how you perceive the good things that happen to you or the bad things that happen to you if, if, if a lot of bad stuff happens to you it doesn't mean you're awful or you're a bad person just just means you're just a human you know yeah and the same thing with that it's, it's how you interpretate the world and it's how you talk about it and, and how you interpretate what you're doing and I think that you have to feel like what you're doing is great and that's um, you were talking about Dom earlier Dom Morley and mm-hmm. what he, the stuff he's done over his life you know it, we, he's an artist you know that's how it, that's how I see it Chris Potter's an artist these producers and these people but they've had to sort of weather the storm you know they, they've had to change their way of working definitely you know they're not making money from the same places so they have to get creative but you know some of them would, they're in a very similar situation do I quit or do I carry on but they carry on and persevere because their job is what their job is. That's what they do. You know? Yeah, they love doing it. Yeah, yeah. So, are you looking for like? Are you looking for people to collaborate with on your next record? Yeah. Well, I mean, for the EPs, yeah. Like my records, I'm still kind of making most of them myself. So this third album, be the first record I've self-produced completely. Um, it's been mixed by Chris, and uh, but yeah. So I'm looking for. I'm always looking for people to collaborate with now because I. I enjoy the process, but it is. I did a poster. I think I had so many people. I had like seventy people or something put themselves forward, which is amazing. So I've got enough for like seventy eight bloody EPs now. <laughs> so I'm gonna do the guy that's just gonna directly nick uh, Sheeran's idea with that and just keep putting out these things. Oh, I just he didn't. He didn't invent collaboration. He didn't invent collaboration, no. did he? But he. I think he, he'd like to think he probably did. <laughs> um, he he definitely invented a lot of things. Um, in fact, he didn't, did he? You know, that loop thing was done, being done by Clay Tunstall way before. Yeah, no, the loop, I mean, he yeah, got good at, I mean, he's very good at losing a loop pedal, but he yeah. certainly didn't invent the loop pedal. Yeah, I, I got a loop pedal, and the first thing I ever did with it, I, I could only create world music. <laughs> so if I ever go down that thing, I'll, you know. That's great. I use no, a little I bit love, of a loop pedal live, loop. but I don't actually use it as a loop pedal, I use, sort of use it as a kind of soundscape thing. Um, but yeah, uh, he it's... I think the the good thing about collaboration for me is it's not just it's like collaborating with all sorts of people not even in a musical sense just like collaborating with artists live and doing stuff I just I, I'm really enjoying that spider's web of it all mm-hmm. and I'm just realising that that's, that's just as rewarding um, and supporting the people that are out there you know 
the spot gigs are fun as well just doing these little things because I get to meet five or six artists straight away you know I get to sort of hook up with them and do stuff but I'd like to do more collaborative things so there'll be a collaboration EP mm-hmm. alongside the record I imagine and are you looking for like to get out of your comfort zone maybe with some of the collaborations like do yeah you... well I tell you what I mean that's another thing we haven't really even touched on but this record I've just made it's going to alienate a lot of people. It's very out of my comfort zone. If, you li- if you're aware of any of my music from before, mm-hmm. this record's nothing like it. That's good, This yeah. record's like, a, there's no guitars really on this record. It's mostly beats and it's mostly synths and it's mostly... Oh, nice, uh, wow. It's an electronic record. It's a sort of, uh, it sounds more like a kind of cross between Radiohead and Seer, that sort of vibe, you know. It's, it's uh, yeah, it's a probably the poppiest thing I've done but it's it's also quite left field uh, very different uh, so I don't I don't know I don't know even if my audience will like it and I don't really care you know I, I do I do these things because I want to create the music for me you know mm. and my circumstances at the time defined that I had to make a record without a studio so I had to use beats and loops and samples and stuff because um, I couldn't afford to go into a studio so this record does that so the EPs will definitely push that even further you know and I kind of know I, I mean, I'm, an ex, I'm kind of weird I've got the next five albums written so like this, the album I do after this change is called Drunk and, and it's going to be uh, sort of more of a Bon Iver-esque sort of more soulful a bit more acoustic but with that electro thing thrown in like Imogen Heap kind of vibe oh cool and then the album after that is called Beautiful Struggle uh, which is the fifth, will be the fifth album which is more of a soul sort of more soulful record more sort of played um so they're the next five. That's amazing. I don't know anyone who's planned that many albums ahead. So. Yeah, I know what I'm doing in 2022, 2023. Yeah, so oh, that's good. I've got it all planned out. I know what I'm doing, when I'm doing it. And, and uh, there's a lot of records, basically. Yeah. Strangely for me, um, there's not a lot. Because I write so much. There's not a lot of... Uh, I wish I could make a record and write it now. So Drunk, is it follow, it's going to be focused on quite a dark period in my childhood. So... It's going to be made in that way where I've, I've left a lot of it to be written whilst I'm recording. So that'll be recorded live, a lot of that. Maybe it'd be interesting to get those Fisher-Price toys back. I'm going to get them back, them yeah. For the, for the album. Well, that's most of my instruments now are Fisher-Price, unfortunately, yeah. Jerry <laughs> <laughs> Shaw yeah. keyboards. They've got worse and worse. I'm the same, man. <laughs> cool, well, it's been great to talk yeah, to you. Yeah, thanks so much, man. I love what you're doing. I love the podcast. I, I love anyone that's... And it will kind of it doing the same thing. We're basically exploring the human condition and uh, and putting it out there. I'm, yeah. I'm sure I'll see you on the comedy scene with me in 20 years. We'll be doing, yeah, we'll yeah. both be doing that dying scene. Dying on stage. We'll be dying on stage. <laughs> You'll be saying, you know, it was funny or not. But it turns out. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Thanks, thanks. Those, man. Yeah, yeah. Cheers, man. It's been nice to speak to you. Great. Nice one. Cool. Really good to speak to Sai. Uh, yeah, he's a really talented singer and uh, clearly someone who's had a lot of uh, life experience and uh, things, yeah, things to overcome like we all have. And um, yeah, he's still going at it and uh, still uh, making music and planning his albums and work far, far into the future. Okay, next month, I don't know who we're talking to might have noticed there's like a two-month gap between the last two podcasts uh there will be future podcasts and but for the time being i don't know who's next we'll find out together won't we okay
Thank you very much for listening. My name is Madeira. I'll see you.